The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The FBI Behavioral Science Unit, BSU for short. Longtime fascination of Hollywood, dramatized in movies and shows like Science of the Lambs, Criminal Minds, uh, technically the Behavioral Analysis Unit, or BAU, what the BSU evolved into for that show. Uh, most recently, the BSU was reintroduced into public consciousness in the popular Netflix show Mindhunter. The Behavioral Science Unit and the FBI as a whole captured the attention of audiences for decades and for good reason. Working for the BSU is literally one of the most high-stakes jobs there is, analyzing and catching serial killers. Do the job right, you save countless lives. Do the job wrong, victims keep disappearing and dying. No pressure. It's a job a bunch of us have probably dreamt about doing at one time or another. I absolutely Wanted to work with Jodie Foster's Clarice Starling after watching Silence of the Lambs, one of my favorite movies of all time, actually. But most of us probably glad we aren't the ones who have to spend day after day immersing ourselves into the minds of some of the sickest people alive, even though that is kind of what I do here most weeks. Uh, today, we talk about some of the agents who were the first to crawl into the minds of the serial killers so many of us are now fascinated by. But the BSU wasn't always the prestigious place it is today. In fact, many in the FBI were skeptical of the BSU's techniques when the unit began operations in the early 70s. What is the BSU? How was it developed? Who were the serial killers, including the notable, some notable times like alumni that investigators profiled? Can you ever take what a serial killer says about himself seriously? Does profiling actually help catch these psychos? Some criminologists and sociologists think that criminal profiling is little more than just a, a shot in the dark, a way of letting us think we can anticipate and control evil when evil doesn't play by society's rules. These are the kind of questions we're exploring today, along with what happens when you get trapped in a small room with gigantic Ed Kemper. Nothing good, mother. All this and more today on another true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Hail Nimrod. I love you, Lucifina. Praise Bojangles. 
and put on a little Triple M if you need to turn your mood from sullen to sunshine. Uh, welcome to the Cult of Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the suck master, the master sucker. Yahim Kroll's Cafe uh, busboy. And uh, you're listening to Time Suck. Recording here in the Suck Dungeon in CDA with the script keeper and with the Reverend Doctor back in the studio. Joe Paisley back in the building. Uh, let me give him a little bit of applause. He deserves it. We're happy to have him here. He's looking healthy. He's looking ready for the August 12th premiere of uh, he and I's new comedy podcast, Is We Dumb? And yes, we, we probably is. On YouTube at Bad Magic Productions, if you want to watch it, subscribe on various podcast apps to listen to. Two episodes coming out on the 12th, uh, Wednesday at noon Pacific time. Uh, back in the store at badmagicmerch.com, the Time Suck University shirts, the School of Wackadoodleness, Criminology, Science and History, back in the store in gray, black, and blue options. Also, Time Suck 2020 gathering info. Due to, uh, you know, the whole COVID situation, the gathering is going to be virtual this year. But tickets, uh, we're still going to have it. Tickets are going to go to sale uh, next week on August 10th when the episode drops. Uh, each ticket holder is going to get an exclusive box of Gathering 2020 items to use during our virtual community event on November 21st, the Saturday before Thanksgiving. There's going to be a limited number of VIP tickets. People get a little uh, extra stuff with those, 200 of those tickets for even more exclusive access, get some tours and other goodies. Uh, these tickets go on sale the minute next week's episode drops. Uh, we'll have even more event details next week. Been a busy week doing some other stuff here in the Suck Dungeon. Uh, just wanted to give everyone a heads up. To follow us on Facebook and Instagram for more up-to-date information at Time Suck Podcast. And again, next week, tickets drop August 10th. We'll remain open through the end of the month other than the VIP tickets, which are gone when they sell out. So see you there, suckers. Uh, we're not going to let COVID totally shut down our annual gathering. Uh, we here at Bad Magic Productions, thanks to our Patreon subscribers, uh, are donating an amount I will announce next week after Patreon processes the month's, uh, you know, subscriptions. Going to donate to a charity close to home for me this time. It's going to be an amount over $6,000, and it's going to ywcaidaho.org, and it's earmarked to the General Fund for Idaho County. You can designate your donation in the comment section of the online donation form at the ywcaidaho.org's website. Uh, Christy Beckstead, a girl I went to high school with at Sam River High back in Riggins, Idaho, back when she was Christy DeWitt. Uh, she's been a domestic violence advocate in Idaho County for over eight years, working out of Grangeville. She said over just the past year, the YWCA in Grangeville, Idaho, just a little town, just a few thousand people, helped more than 60 women in Idaho County who've experienced uh, dramatic trauma due to domestic violence situations. I mean, Jesus, the stories she had to tell. Uh, I visited her when I was, when I was back in my uh, uh, hometown area a couple weeks ago. This help has included rent, bus tickets, car repairs, daycare for court dates and fuel. Uh, she shared, again, some real horror stories. The need for help is very real. Rural domestic violence, all too real here in Idaho and a lot of other places. So happy to help someone doing so much for these women. Uh, the money, it's going to go a long ways in this uh, charity. So again, you can go to ywcaidaho.org earmark your donation, your donation, excuse me, to General Fund Idaho County if you'd like to help her out as well. And uh, you can designate your donation in the comment section of the online donation form. Link in the episode description. One more quick thing before we get into the BSU. Uh, who has won the very first round of the Patreon trivia game, the new game we have in the app? Uh, well, uh, I don't know. I don't know who's going to get the Cowboy Pigeon Trophy because we recorded this on Friday, this past Friday, but Slow Stroke 95 was in the lead with 5,576 points. Winner's going to be announced uh, Tuesday on socials at Timesuck Podcast, again, on Instagram and Facebook. And then the new round, as you're hearing this, has already started. So get to playing space, lizards. 
And uh, yeah, very excited that you, a lot of you are taking advantage of that game, and we can't wait to send out the first prizes and see what you think of it. The, the cowboy hat pitching trophies, I love them so much. And you spacers just know why we have that trophy. Uh, finally, very special update coming in today's Time Sucker updates. We're going to hear audio sent in from a former Tony uh, Alamo cult member about what life was like inside the cult. Going to hear from Kenya. Intense. Uh, now, 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 we're going to get to today's topic. The spaces have decided to have us investigate the investigators. Let's get to it. Looking at the Behavioral Science Unit, BSU, of the FBI, mostly today, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. BSU, one of the original instructional components of the, v, uh, of the FBI's training division at Quantico, Virginia. Its mission was to develop and provide programs of training, research, and consultation in the behavioral and social sciences for the Federal Bureau of Investigation and for law enforcement, uh, you know, in the law enforcement community at large in the U.S., and to improve and enhance administration, operational effectiveness, and understanding of violent crime in America. BSU morphed into the Behavioral Analysis Unit in 1997. Currently, the BAU maintains three different behavioral analysis units. And, and a lot more than those three units use techniques developed by the BSU and the BAU. Many units within the FBI use and have used the techniques and theories developed by this unit during the 50-odd years it has been active. Many of the BSU's educational programs eventually developed into standalone units and centers such as the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, NCAVC, Undercover Safeguard Unit, Crisis Negotiation Unit, Hostage Rescue Team, Crisis Unit Negotiation Team, uh, CUNT, and Employee Assistance Unit. And maybe one of those isn't real. Uh, Junior Jaime wishes the Crisis Unit Negotiation Team uh, was a real acronym. So I could just, you know, think about uh, federal agents trying to ignore the continual snickering they would hear. Every time they walked out into public wearing gear with cunt written all over it. Uh, today, we're giving the FBI's behavioral science unit and the FBI itself really the time suck treatment. We'll check out the FBI's history, both the wins and the warts. We'll answer questions like, uh, how much DNA do they actually have on file? Short answer is a lot. Maybe yours, probably yours. Uh, there's a good chance they've already cloned you. Don't, don't look behind you. Clone you. It's probably back there watching. Clone you. Always watching you. Uh, but for real, we're going to look into the DNA database of the FBI. Help you decide if you can realistically pull off uh, getting away with some murders. I mean, so you can learn interesting info. <laughs> We're going to talk about the strange things the FBI has spent years investigating, the surprising public figures that the FBI has created dossiers on, or dossiers on, excuse me, throughout history. I always want to put that R in there. Then we'll move to the BSU and the founders of behavioral science, we'll learn about some of their most famous serial killer profiles and what the profilers learned from each killer. Yeah, we got some extra info on some old uh, creeps we've talked about in previous sucks. Finally, we'll explore what uh, Hollywood gets wrong about their portrayal of the FBI and their agents and then how you can become an FBI, uh, you know, profiler yourself. So let's let's get to yip, yip, yawn to understand the BAU and the behavioral science uh, as a discipline. We have to first look at the FBI as a whole. Contrary to what a lot of trucker hats would lead one to believe, the FBI stands for Federal Bureau of Investigation, not Female Body Inspector. Uh, side note, if you think female body inspector hats are the height of humor, uh, I have some overpriced tuxedo t-shirts, and I love titties beer koozies I'd like to sell you. Uh, the FBI is the United States' principal law enforcement agency operating under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of Justice. The FBI reports to both the Attorney General and the Director of the National Intelligence, uh, and the Director of, excuse me, National Intelligence. The FBI has jurisdiction over violations of more than 200 different categories of federal crimes. Terrorism is the FBI's top investigative priority. Shutting down the next Timothy McVeigh, a.k.a. Noodle McDryween, before he tries to pull off the next Oklahoma City bombing-type attack. 
The FBI also investigates all kinds of other crimes. Uh, we'll list out their top 10 main criminal focuses here in just a moment. Unlike the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, which technically has no law enforcement authority and focuses on intelligence collection abroad, the FBI is primarily a domestic agency, maintaining 56 field offices in major cities throughout the United States, more than 400 resident agencies in smaller cities and areas across the nation. The FBI headquarters is the J. Edgar Hoover Building located in Washington, D.C. And the closest office, uh, FBI office to the Suck Dungeon is only about a 40-minute drive from me. Uh, 1,116 West Riverside Ave, Spokane, Washington. I've walked by that uh, place numerous times over the years. What do, they, what do they do there? I don't know. Google won't tell me, and I, and I don't like it. Maybe they have the Suck Dungeon bugged. Maybe there's an agent hiding above me right at this very moment, hiding, hiding on top of the drop-down ceiling tiles. I'm on to you, Agent Nosy Nelly. Uh, according to the FBI website, these are the FBI's top 10 priorities and goals. One, protect the U.S. from terrorist attacks. Two, protect the U.S. against foreign intelligence operations and espionage. Three, protect the U.S. against cyber-based attacks and high-technology crimes. Four, combat public corruption at all levels. Five, protect civil rights. Six, combat national, or excuse me, transnational slash national criminal organizations and enterprises. Seven, combat major white-collar crime. Eight, combat significant violent crime. Nine, support federal, state, local, and international partners. And 10, upgrade technology to enable and further the successful performances of its missions as stated above. Uh, the FBI has been uh, fighting crime for a while. They got their start on June 29, 1908, uh, when Attorney General Charles J. Bonaparte ordered the creation of a special agent force in the Department of Justice. His order reassigned 23 investigators already employed by the department and permanently hired eight more agents from the Treasury Department. So just 31 agents to get started. According to the order, the special agent force was to report to Chief Examiner Stanley W. Finch, making him the first director of this force. Director Finch. I like that. I feel like that plays, right? That sounds like a, a solid FBI name. Director Finch, these are agents Jackson and Carter. Those names sound way more FBI-ish to me than say like, Director Tinkle. These are agents Little and Crispy Bottom. Uh, March of 1909, Agent General George W. Wickersham named this new force the Bureau of Investigation. FBI's actually gone through many names. Uh, 1933. Yeah, whenever you get into governmental stuff, it's, uh, the acronym shit is so fucking annoying, right? Can we all agree on that? I just had to do so much rearranging and research. Like, when, when, did these, when did this particular acronym start? Why can't you, no, you settle on it? The BOI, Bureau, right? The Bureau of Investigation. That's fine. You could have left it there the entire time, right? But the behavioral science unit goes to behavioral analysis unit. Like, why, who does that? Some new director comes in, no, I'm like it. No, that acronym doesn't work for me. Let's give this uh, same same group of uh, you know professionals the 17th acronym they've had in the past 16 years. Anyway, it's just a personal pet beef. Reminds me of what I talked about like uh, in Russia. You talk about the secret police and there's like fucking 45 different agencies <laughs> over like a 60-year period. Anyway, the 1933, the BOI was connected to the Bureau of Prohibition under an umbrella department called the Division of Investigation. Right? They love it. They love their acronyms. The DOI. Then on January 1st, 1936, <laughs> the Division of Investigation officially became the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Because you can't just call it division. That's crazy talk. You can't leave that forever. No, it's got to be the Federal Bureau. Um, people have been talking a lot about the feds ever since. Uh, initially, though, not a lot of people talking about them. Uh, let's back up a tiny bit. The BOI did not become powerful overnight. For many years, there was little more than a rinky-dink operation staffed by just a couple of agents. 1932, uh, 1932, the BOI had actually gotten so small, its entire crime lab— I think I, when I think about the FBI crime lab now, I picture a lot of scientists, a lot of researchers, 
1932, one dude, one man operation. He was in a single room that doubled <laughs> as the smoking lounge in the Department of Justice. That's insulting, right? This guy's investigation lab. It's like we're also where people just come to smoke on their breaks. He's out there fucking working with beakers and shit. Smoke cloud around him, you know. Agents talking about, hey, you see the Yankees with the Red Sox Saturday? I'm trying to do my analysis. Uh, the lone technician special agent Charles Apple used a borrowed microscope, wiretapping kit, and basic chemi- chemicals to analyze handwriting and examine other crime scene evidence. Poor Agent Apple, one man band using borrowed equipment. Poor little dude. And I'm just sitting behind a cartoonishly large pile of paperwork, probably face buried in his hands, drinking about 30 cups of coffee a day, dealing with everybody's bullshit. Two phrases you'd hear from him far more than any others would probably just, I'm doing my best. Maybe like, not, not now, not now. Uh, within a few uh, years, additional experts joined the team. The FBI moved its, to its current headquarters, the J. Edgar Hoover Building, located at 935 Pennsylvania Avenue in October 1974. And soon they had more technicians than poor Agent Apple. Poor, uh, poor Agent Not Now. Uh, working on their investigations. The first person to be called director of the FBI acronym was William J. Burns. Mm, Mr. Burns. Yes, man, that's excellent. Uh, he wouldn't last long. In the early 20, 1920s, companies were permitted to take oil from the U.S. Navy's reserve supplies at Teapot Dome, Washington. as part of a shady private deal. And when Senator Burton K. Wheeler, oh, Senator Wheeler, uh, began looking into this agreement, FBI Director Burns was sent to gather dirt on Wheeler to force him to shut the fuck up. When it came out that he had done that, Burns' reputation was irreparably damaged and he was forced to resign. No, Smithers. Not excellent. Uh, he was replaced by J. Edgar Hoover, somebody uh, arguably much more corrupt. Hoover, we've talked about him a few times on The Suck. Son of a vacuum baron who lost his penis in a tragic boys will be boys sexual experiment where he and his brother uh, both put their penises in different vacuums in a strange and eventually gory masturbation race. Uh, if you remember that entirely made up bit of Hoover history from the Dillinger Suck. Uh, Hoover landed his first job at the Department of Justice in 1917 at just 22 years old. By 1924, he'd become the head of the BOI. When Hoover died in 1977, he'd spent 48 years, 62% of his life, at the helm of the FBI. FBI directors now limited to 10-year terms. And again, to learn more about J. Edgar Hoover, check out the Dillinger Suck, episode 184. Uh, the educational departments of the FBI, departments that would later launch the BSU, started in 1928 when the BOI instituted a theoretical and practical training course for new special agents. During a two-month assignment to the Washington field office, new agents were now instructed in bureau rules and procedures provided with practical exercises in crime investigation and evaluated by experienced agents. Uh, with the start of World War II, the FBI uh, amped up its monitoring, amped up, excuse me, its monitoring of internal threats uh, to the U.S. national security. Most of the people on the list were Japanese-American, um, with some German-Americans and Italian-Americans thrown in as well. All three groups, of course, representing the Axis powers the U.S. and its allies were, allies were fighting against, uh, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Uh, German-Americans were getting scrutinized for the second time in the first half of the 20th century. They'd gotten the stink eye and thrown into internment camps during World War I. Now they're getting thrown back into internment camps in uh, World War II. Speaking of Germans and camps, come on down this week to the new Kroll's Cafe and Malt Shop in Hindenkraut. Fellow dining on sexy cow lovers. The whole menu is mostly beef, I promise. Get out of here, Yahim! Yahim Kroll, sorry about that, you guys. Uh, two years after Pearl Harbor, the FBI was less focused on German Americans, more focused on Japanese Americans, a lot more focused. 127,000 Japanese Americans would be rounded up and forcibly imprisoned in internment camps during the war compared to only 11,000 Germans and only 3,000 Italians. 
pretty fucked up. Uh, really fucked up when you think about how all these people were innocent until proven guilty. And almost, uh, you know, all of them were in fact innocent. If you were Japanese-American in 1943, not already living in an internment camp, and you thought federal agents were probably spying on you, you're probably right. President Roosevelt actually ordered the complete removal of Japanese-Americans from the West Coast. The FBI continued to monitor those people being held in camps and even recruited informants to report on troublemakers. Uh, seems as if they may have taken Aaron on the side of caution a, a wee bit far to protect the country. But easy for me to say, you know, that since I've never lived uh, through a threat to the world freedom nearly as great as when Hirohito and Hitler and Mussolini were hell-bent on taking over the entire world and uh, damn near did just that. In a case of extreme irony, the FBI was used again to help the Japanese-American detainees relocate safely back to their old communities and protect them from hateful attacks by their white neighbors at the conclusion of the war. Just a bit awkward. Uh, hello, Mr. Tanaka. I'm Agent Carter. You may remember meeting me a few years ago when I dragged you and your family out of your home in Seattle. Sorry to hear you lost your hardware business and family home over that bit of national security work I was doing. Anywho, I'm going to be in charge of transporting you back to Seattle from Arkansas. Where should uh, where should we drop you off? I mean, your, your home's out. <laughs> Another family lives there now. Of course, the Mitchells, I believe. I heard they got one hell of a deal in the place. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of innocent people being incarcerated, let me bring up another blemish in the history of the agency that is supposed to investigate corruption, not be corrupt itself. In one of the lowest points of its law enforcement history, the Bureau helped frame four innocent men for the murder of Edward Deegan in 1965. At 11 p.m., March 12, 1965, Deegan's body found lying on his back, covered in blood, 12-inch screwdriver near his left hand in an alleyway in Chelsea, Massachusetts. The 35-year-old with a long criminal history was suspected in a recent $40,000 holdup of a local mob boss, or excuse me, local mob connected bookie associated with the uh, Patriarca family, the crime family out there. And he was lured to the location of his death on the pretext of participating in a lucrative bull burglary. He was shot six times. Local police believe they, uh, he was shot by three, you know, different, uh, you know, men, uh, three different weapons involved in his execution, one forty-five caliber, uh, two separate thirty-eight caliber guns. Within hours of Deacon's death, the Boston field office sent a memo to Director J. Edgar Hoover identifying Joseph Barboza, Vincent Fleming, Ronald Ronnie the Pig, Cassio, Wilfred Roy French as all being present in the alleyway at the scene of the crime. Uh, the FBI also knew that Barboza, a.k.a. Joseph the Animal Barboza, uh, Jimmy the Bear Fleming, they were the murderers. So it sounds like, you know, one of the guys had one gun, one of the guys had two. Uh, and I guess, love all these names. Pig, Animal, and the Bear. How fun would it be to be flying the wall for like a huge 1960s New England mob gathering? Hey, Tony, come meet the Providence boys. This is uh, this is Scully, the jackal, Totora. And that's, uh, that's Sal Fat Muskrat, bumping over there. This joke over here, the coonskin hat, that's, that's Ricky the Raccoon, Pescatelli. He's in the same crew as John Camel Tits Fatello, Louis Sleepy Babu and Santini, Bobby Animal Cracker, Buffalino, not to be confused with his cousin, Bobby Lizard laying on some hot rocks, enjoying himself, Buffalino. Uh, let's grab some drinks. Hey, uh, Skinny Clam, Wounded Rock Chuck. Get my boys over here, whatever they want. Uh, back to the FBI. That was too fun for me. Uh, the FBI had bugged the local mafia's crime boss's office and uh, heard information pertaining to the men being tasked with taking Deegan out just days before he was killed. And the FBI made sure not to release that obviously important evidence to police detectives investigating Deegan's murder. Why would they hide it? Because in addition to being dudes who did mob hits and had cool names, uh, both Vincent the Bear and Joseph the Animal were also valuable FBI informants. So, 
FBI agent Paul Rico promised Roy French and Ronald uh, Caseo lesser sentences if they would corroborate some bullshit never happened testimony from Barboza, uh, who would blame some of his associates for the murder that he actually committed. You know, it wasn't me. It was Sonny Chubby Tree Frog Carosa. It was Donnie Elegant Sandhill Crane Spaghettios. Oh, the FBI figured that they uh, wanted to keep getting information, you know, uh, from their informants. If they were going to do that, they needed to protect them from prosecution. Uh, Barboza told a jury that four men were involved in Diggins' death. Louis Greco, Henry Tamelio, Ronald Caseo, and Peter Lamone. Uh, those four men, gangsters, but not Diggins' murderers, were sentenced to life in prison. And the, again, the FBI knew they were innocent. Uh, December of two, at least for that crime. December of 2000, the Justice Department finally decided to investigate this. And according to a report conducted by the Committee on Government Reform in 2004, the information he provided was contradicted by information already known to federal officials, which rendered Barboza's testimony suspect. It is inconceivable that federal law enforcement officials, officials did not know what Barboza was going to tell the grand jury and what he did tell the grand jury. Therefore, it is very likely that at least some federal officials understood that Barboza had committed perjury before the Suffolk County grand jury and that he was prepared to provide testimony at trial that was not true. After this FBI cover-up was revealed, the U.S. government paid $102 million to the defendants and their families. At the time, the single largest sum ever awarded from the federal government under the Federal Tort Claims Act. Uh, by that time, however, Henry Tamello or Tamlio and Louis uh, Greco had already died in prison. His name just doesn't fucking look right. Like a Tamelio, maybe. Tamelio spent the final almost uh, 20 years of his life in prison and Greco spent the final 30 years of his life in prison. Peter Lamone and Joseph Salvati's convictions were vacated in January 2001 and they were released from prison after being wrongfully imprisoned for 33 years. Yee. Hey, Peter the Snapping Turtle. Joseph the Fruit Bat, you guys took some kind of long vacation, huh? That settlement wasn't enough scratch for you. You know, we got common Mustang nipples. Capone, could use some help moving some product down on the south end. Uh, Lamone and Salvati, uh, Salvati, yeah, were not entirely innocent. Still wrong that they were framed, but, you know, they were also mafia guys. By all accounts, throughout his time in prison, Lamone actually continued his association with the patriarchal crime family. And in July 2010, Lamone pleaded no contest to charges of loan sharking, extortion, and for running at least four illegal gambling parlors in Middlesex, New Jersey. After all that, he got busted all over again less than a decade later. He had 25% of a $102 million settlement. Even after lawyer fees, he had to have gotten $5, $10 million easy. Uh, clearly, he liked the lifestyle as much as he liked the money. Uh, to his gangster credit, he did avoid prison after getting a plea deal for those crimes. And then he died in 2017, a free man at the age of 83. Uh, Salvati, whose criminal record begins in 1954, was working odd jobs, owed Barboza $400 at the time of Deegan's murder. He refused to pay the debt. He, he filched on the animal. And Salvati's lawyers believed that Barboza, the first in Boston recruited for the FBI Witness Protection Program, set Salvati up simply to settle old scores. Uh, today, Salvati is still alive at 87 years old, living in Boston uh, with his wife and probably at least jaywalking, right? Or not, not, not coming to a complete stop, stop signs if he's not committing additional crimes. And he went to prison for all those years. Because he didn't pay the fucking animal $400. Uh, now, let's, now let's talk a little about something the FBI might be known for even more than working with gangster informants, like, like in some Scorsese, Scorsese flick, uh, it's gigantic criminal database. Does the FBI have your fingerprints? Do they have mine? You don't want to have to uh, be a wanted criminal to have fingerprints on, uh, you don't have to be, excuse me, uh, a wanted criminal to have fingerprints on file with the FBI. If you've ever been fingerprinted for a background check, like for a driver's license or a job, then the FBI probably has those store prints. 
right? This, the organization keeps them in the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System located in Clarksburg, West Virginia. So they do probably have your prints. Good luck getting away with murder if you're not wearing gloves. Uh, like some kind of creepy ex-boyfriend, they also collect hair. Uh, they keep over 5,000 samples of human and animal hair for comparative investigative analysis purposes. Carrie T. Owen, uh, unit chief for the Trace Evidence Unit at the FBI Laboratory, uh, writes, hair evidence is one of the most common types of evidence encountered in criminal investigations. When hair is collected from a crime scene, investigators compare it to the cataloged hair on file to determine with relative certainty uh, the ethnicity uh, and from which body or which you know body part or part of the body it came from. What about DNA? Uh, does the FBI have your DNA info? Uh, they have access to mine if they can get a court order. If you've ever submitted your DNA to a genetic testing company like I have, like 23andMe, then the FBI theoretically could get a hold of your DNA. You don't have uh, HIPAA protections with these third-party sites, which means uh, you know that they can g- they give your DNA to law enforcement without your consent. Uh, according to 23andMe's website, they have to, quote, comply with court orders, subpoenas, search warrants, or other requests that we determine are legally valid. They also say that to date, they have not given any customer information to law enforcement. But is that true? Or is that what the FBI has told them to say publicly? Uh, Gaining access to this type of info can be viewed as an enormous invasion of privacy. Terrible example of government overreach. Part of a slippery slope. Leaves us all living in some sort of Orwellian 1984 thought police totalitarian dystopian nightmare. Viewing it in this light, in my opinion, is uh, not paranoid. However, this type of privacy access also has put some very nasty people behind bars. While not an FBI agent, former Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office Detective Paul Holes used this type of genetic sleuthing to put the Golden State killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, behind bars, as we learned in that suck. And if you think collecting hair and DNA is strange, check this out. The FBI also has employees uh, who will glue your shredded files together. Mm-hmm. Your trusty paper shredder will not stop the FBI from putting you behind bars. These, these poor employees are called uh, forensic document examiners. And reconstructing shredded documents is one of their very specialized jobs. Some are also handwriting experts who work with cases of contested wills, sports memorabilia fraud, suicide notes. Others examine charred and liquid-soaked documents, decode tire tread and shoe prints, and figure out exactly which office machine you use to destroy your shady document. How would you like the job of reconstructing shredded paper? Oh, my God. To me, that, that, that literally sounds like the type of job that someone would do in, in like a dark comedy movie. Where they die and then they wake up in actual hell and they find out that they're in some huge cubicle zoo of an office and they have to put shredded papers back together. That's their job in hell. And then right when they finally, you know, almost got all the papers put back together from like one, you know, trash can, then some demon supervisor, you know, just comes out and here's an extra paper, shredded paper. God, fuck. And they go back to reconstructing all these documents all over again. <laughs> that would be my hell. You ever tried putting together a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle? I did one a few years ago and not relaxing at all to me. It is an exercise in madness. It's, it's a heart attack inducer. Just what the fuck? I've tried to connect this to a piece like literally every other piece. Are you sure you didn't touch it? Are you positive? You didn't knock at least one piece on the floor. I have to walk away. I'm gonna kick this goddamn fold-out table across the floor. Burn this puzzle. It's crazy the lengths FBI technicians will go to solve a case. Uh, a group of them once tracked to Middle Eastern terrorists by mining falafel sale data. 2005, 2006, the FBI mined grocery store data in San Francisco and San Jose in search of clues that would lead them to Iranian terrorists. As reported by Wired, the idea was that a spike in, say, falafel sales combined with other data would lead to Iranian secret agents. The program was called, no joke, Total Falafel Awareness. It was shut down by the head of the FBI's criminal investigations unit, Michael A. Mason, who said that what they were doing was probably illegal, which is weird. 
examining your DNA without, you know, your permission, that's fine. But tracking down regional falafel sales, mm, too far, too far. Weird line to draw. Uh, I hope when that operation name was tossed out in meetings, I actually hope that people weren't laughing. That's funnier to me if they took it seriously. Agent Carter, it's time we take things to the next level. It's time we launch total falafel awareness. So they may have your hair, DNA, shredded documents. They may know what kind of Middle Eastern street food you like. But is the FBI listening to your conversations? Yeah, maybe. The FBI first began wiretapping way back in the 1920s to arrest people smuggling alcohol during the Prohibition era. Uh, the use of uh, early uh, you know, wiretapping naturally led to a serious discussion on whether it was legal for the FBI to even do so, given concerns over privacy and surveillance. Those hangups about privacy, pun intended, uh, would be dialed and resolved, 1927. That year, Olmstead versus United States, a case which involved a bootlegger, Roy Olmstead, who was arrested based on evidence gained from wiretapping, would reach this uh, Supreme Court. Roy Olmstead was a bootlegger who was born in Beaver City, Nebraska. That's about the yip yip yawiest hoke hog folk dog folkiest uh, name profession and hometown combo I've ever heard. Name's Olmstead, Roy Olmstead. You can call Whiskey Pete. And I've been I've been slinging moonshine since I was knee high to a cricket back in Beaver City, Nebraska. Ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that wiretapping did not count as an unlawful search and seizure procedure, which meant it did not violate the Fourth Amendment. The only condition they gave was that nobody's home was to be broken into in the process of wiretapping. Olmstead was sentenced to four years with hard labor, fined $8,000 for conspiracy to violate the National Prohibition Act. The FBI historically has loved a wiretap. They can and uh, still do wiretap phones. They have to get a court order, but they can do it. They can also theoretically tap into your text messages, video chats, and more. Harder to pull off on a technical level with software security and encryption features, but legally very possible. Uh, one of the most famous FBI wiretaps of all time uh, the, the was the wiretapping, the bugging of civil rights icon Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King. Oddly enough, it was MLK's I Have a Dream speech delivered to protesters gathered around the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. on August 28, 1963, uh, that convinced J. Edgar Hoover that King was, quote, the most dangerous and effective leader in the country. I say oddly, but uh, from touching on Hoover and other sucks, although I should probably research him a little bit more before saying this, he seemed like he was a real morally bankrupt uh, piece of shit. One of those people uh, that would just do a lot of shady stuff under the guise of uh, the ends justify the means. Uh, Hoover launched an FBI campaign to tap King's phones and label him a communist and a pervert. Propaganda and slander. Historically, not just a tool by, you know, used by countries like the Soviet Union, North Korea. Uh, been used plenty in the States as well by agencies like the FBI. Uh, FBI documents claim without evidence regarding an attendant at one of King's conferences. And this is a quote, so please forgive the old-timey racist language. One Negro minister in attendance later expressed his disgust with the behind-the-scene drinking, fornication, and homosexuality. The document also alleged several Negro and white prostitutes were brought in from the Miami area. Uh, an all-night sex orgy was held with these prostitutes and some of the delegates. Hoover's obsession with King's supposed debaucherous ways most likely had little to do with a legit investigation, a lot to do with Hoover's own repressed sexual issues. It's been alleged in film and many a book that Hoover, a man who aggressively denounced homosexuality and infidelity publicly, may have privately been a homosexual transvestite. And that his own self-loathing led him to attack others for what he perceived to be their sexual mor moral transgressions. Hoover seemed to be obsessed with what he perceived to be King's sexual deviancy. In a memo, Hoover said that King was a tomcat with obsessive degenerate sexual urges. On one occasion, the FBI mailed alleged sex tapes of King's adultery in a letter to Coretta Scott King, his wife, in an attempt to destroy their marriage. 
What the fuck? Greta later remarked that I couldn't make much out of it. It was just a lot of mumbo jumbo. The letter accused King of being sexually psychotic and a colossal fraud. Uh, Hoover may have, may have even, excuse me, went even further to fuck with Dr. King. He allegedly sent an anonymous letter threatening that King had just 34 days to take his own life before his filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self was laid bare to the nation. There's no record that indicates that King ever responded to the letter and nothing was ever uh, bare to the nation. I've often, I've often thought about the Lord Acton quote, right? Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Hoover had a lot of power. Maybe that's why he seems uh, very corrupt. He was the head of the U.S. largest, uh, most powerful federal investigative body for roughly half a century. That seems to maybe have turned him into a tyrant. Uh, quick note, since it was brought up, and it's been over two years since we did the Martin Luther King Jr. suck, uh, did Hoover's accusations have any basis in reality? Well, according to Ralph Abernathy, who was a civil rights activist and collaborated with King for many years, King did have, quote, a weakness for women. Although he understood and believed in the biblical prohibition against sex outside of marriage, it was uh, just that he had a particularly difficult time with that temptation. Many subsequent biographers have claimed that King had several affairs during his marriage, including uh, one with a woman he saw almost daily in the months leading up to his assassination. Coretta King, Martin's wife, never believed any of these allegations, not even when she listened to the FBI recordings of King's phone calls. In her memoir, she wrote, I set up our reel-to-reel recorder and listened. I have read scores of reports talking about the scurrilous activities of my husband. Once again, there was nothing at all incriminating on the tape. It was a social event with people laughing and telling dirty jokes, but I did not hear Martin's voice on it, and there was nothing about sex or anything else resembling the lies J. Edgar and the FBI were spreading. Did King have affairs? As I said, way back in the King suck. Uh, yeah, he may. He may have. Probably did. Uh, you know, should that be what we focus on when it comes to his legacy? Nah, I don't think so. Never said he was perfect in uh, any one of his speeches. Not a single one. Uh, definitely check out Suckasode 42 for more on Dr. King. Uh, back to FBI wiretapping. FBI was all over the place when it came to wiretapping people in the public eye for their connections and ideas, especially artists considered to be or have ties to communists during the mid-20th century. American protest singer Phil Oakes made his name writing hundreds of songs. He was super prolific in the 1960s and 1970s, criticizing the Vietnam War and the U.S. government in general. And FBI surveillance may have driven him into an early grave. By the mid-70s, his drinking had become a serious problem. He was terrifying friends and family with what they thought were wild claims of being stalked by the FBI and the CIA. They thought he was paranoid. He wasn't. Oakes tragically took his own life at the age of 35 in 1976 after a long bout with depression. After his death, it was revealed that the FBI did have a 500-page file on him, and they'd been working on it for years, even after he had died. He was being, uh, you know, followed to an extent by the FBI, surveyed. Uh, Oakes wasn't the only person that thought he was being watched by the FBI, told people, you know, uh, people told him then that he was being crazy, only for it to be revealed after they died that they indeed were not being crazy and that they were being watched. So fucked up just to die, not having anyone believe you. In the last year of his life, a year he spent here in Ketchum, Idaho, hometown of Reverend Dr. Paisley, a renowned writer, Ernest Hemingway, wrote the following. They've bugged everything. Everything's bugged. Can't use the phone. Mail intercepted. Since this was coming from a hard-drinking man who suffered from a depression, Hemingway was persuaded to take shock therapy. Uh, and he did, and the treatment did not help him. It seemed to make things worse. Hemingway would go on to take his own life in July 2nd, 1961. Two decades later, it's revealed that Hemingway had been absolutely right in his convictions. The FBI had been tracking him since the 1940s. They had been tapping his phones. They even tapped a phone uh, that he had at his room at a psychiatric hospital. Pretty fucked up. Then there was John Lennon, one of the Beatles. Lennon, not shy about his political leanings. He was actively anti-war. 
Uh, even used his honeymoon with Yoko Ono, one of the most god-awful vocalists in the history of popular music, in my opinion, as an opportunity to stage a nonviolent protest. Taking inspiration from sit-ins, John and Yoko stayed in bed for two weeks in what they called a bed-in to end the Vietnam War. And when he spoke out on behalf of a man who had sold two joints to an undercover cop, he was put under FBI surveillance. The Immigration and Naturalization Service even tried to deport Lund or Lennon back to uh, England. And I wasn't just jumping on the uh, Yoko Ono is the worst bandwagon. She really is, in my opinion, one of the worst vocalists of all time, counting only people who have made it to the level of, say, like appearing on like a, a you know television singing. Check out this little snippet. I, for I actually forgot how absolutely terrible she was. This is her singing... Uh, <laughs> We're all water on the, on the Dick Cavett show in what I think is either 1971 or 1972. The video doesn't identify it, but that's when she would have been on there. Gets way worse. <laughs> I will say... <laughs> I will say this song is a pretty good track to air banjo cover. It's the rare song where the air banjo is actually way less annoying than the vocals. Keep on plucking so you can't hear her. This is better. Okay, I'll stop. Uh, man, Yoko, what the fuck? Makes you wonder if Lennon hired someone to shoot him just to get away from her. Uh, the list of celebrities the FBI has kept a close eye and goes on and on. Steve Jobs. Marilyn Monroe, Lucille Ball, Truman Capote, Whitney Houston, Helen Keller, George St uh, Steinbrenner, Jackie Robinson, Rock Hudson, John Denver, Charlie Chaplin, Dick Clark. All these people have been surveyed by the FBI at one time or another. And, and if you think you're on their radar, uh, you can actually request a copy for your own files or of your own files, you know, that they have. And I didn't make up Helen Keller. Deaf and blind, she was under FBI surveillance for a good portion of her life. Uh, I think her life would be a, a great suck, by the way. Other public figures have been approached by the FBI to collaborate uh, with the FBI, including Walt Disney. During the McCarthyism period of the 1950s, when people suspected of being communists had careers ruined and were even imprisoned at times, Walt Disney took action by becoming an FBI informant. He reported the names of those people whom he suspected to be communists to the FBI. Were there any commies working on his cartoons? And in return, Disney got to film the Mickey Mouse Club at the FBI headquarters. Why they would want to do that is beyond anyone's knowledge. Uh, Walt was an FBI informant from 1940 until his death in 1966. Hoover wanted to make sure that Mickey Mouse wasn't spouting out any pinko communist bullshit. Gee, Minnie, want to go to the state-sponsored dance? They have a band and soda pop and candy and it's all free. Everything's taken care of when you let the state take care of you. <laughs> uh, perhaps the most surprising character on our list of celebrities with FBI associations is Borat. Yes, that Borat. In the 2000s, the FBI managed to find time and resources to create a file for British actor and comedian Sasha Baron Cohen. As Borat, he traveled across the U.S., fucked with people uh, to just an amazing level, in my opinion. Ninja-level troll. Some of the funniest shit I've ever watched in my life. Uh, and Cohen told Fresh Air host Terry Gross in March of 2012, sometimes it was the police, then the FBI were following us for a while. They had so many complaints that there was a Middle Eastern man driving through America in an ice cream van that the FBI assigned, assigned a team to follow us. Uh, the FBI has investigated a lot of weird shit over the years. In the late 1950s, the FBI looked into whether extrasensory perception, ESP, could be used as an espionage tool, according to files declassified in April of 2011. One agent wrote in a memo, there is no limit to the value which could accrue to the FBI 
complete and undetectable access to mail, visual access to buildings. The possibilities are unlimited. Glad that hopefully they weren't able to access that. In 1960, the Bureau gave up after finding no scientific support for the potential of ESP. At least that's what they want you to believe. Probably some Stranger Things type FBI ESP laboratory somewhere, you know, ripping a hole into the upside down right now. Uh, the FBI has also investigated songs. During the 1960s, analysts at the FBI's Cutting Edge Laboratory spent more than two years investigating the lyrics to the Kingsman hit pop song, Louie Louie. Not even kidding. Rumors swirled at the time that the catchy but poorly recorded tunes garbled verses contained pornographic language. Concerned parents were writing to the government expressing outrage. How dare those Portland, Oregon-based garage rockers turn America's youth into a bunch of hippie fuck machines with their Louie Louie sex orgy bullshit. Uh, the FBI subjected various versions of the song to rigorous auto audio tests. It produced a 120-page report on Louie Louie. They concluded that any messages, if they existed, were, quote, unintelligible at any speed. All right? I don't know, man. Maybe they didn't listen hard enough. Louie Louie. Oh, no. We gotta go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You smacked that poster. Uh, so who knows? The FBI also went after a movie many consider to be one of the most wholesome holiday films in existence. It's a Wonderful Life. An FBI officer who saw it before its official release on January 7th, 1947, said it was plumb full of communist propaganda. In a memo to the director, to Hoover, uh, <laughs> it was written, the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he could be the most hated man in the picture. According to the memo, this kind of veiled anti-capitalist portrayal is a common trick used by communists to malign the upper class. I picture Hoover sitting behind his desk, scowling, slamming his fist on the table. Damn them! Greed is good. Greed is good. Uh, the FBI investigated and found that there were indeed communist propaganda messages in the movie. Nevertheless, the movie still premiered, uh, went on to become one of the most beloved movies of all time. So enjoy it this holiday season, you pinko piece of shit. All right, you like a wonderful life? Why don't you get a life-size statue of Stalin? Put it in your big red living room. You can jerk him off while you gobble up his George Bailey commie bullshit. Okay. Easy Bojangles. Bojangles even get a little bit riled by all that. Uh, Going to talk about some good FBI stuff here in a moment as well. Uh, some of the agency's best ever agents. First, though, have to at least mention the FBI's uh, 10 most wanted list. I was fascinated by the 10 most wanted list as a kid. Right, The, na the nation's most dangerous criminals. When I heard about somebody on the FBI's 10 most wanted, I was like, oh, man. They're, they're one of the worst people. Oh, God, I hope they're not coming to my town. They'll kill everybody. Uh, interesting how that list was invented. The FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives publicity campaign uh, came about in 1950 when a reporter asked the agency for the names and descriptions of the toughest guys on his inventory of targets. The resulting article garnered so much attention by the public that Hoover decided to begin issuing an official list. And the list has powerfully illustrated how effective the FBI has been historically at catching their man. They generally do go after men uh, also. More on that in just a moment. Uh, since the program's inception, 484 of the 518 criminals who have made the top 10 have been apprehended or, or located. That's a success rate of over 93%. So far, only 34 have managed to evade capture. Right? All but 10 of those 518 criminals have been men. That's 98%. In fact, it took a full 18 years before the first woman was featured in 1968. Ruth Eisman Shire the Honduran daughter of an Austrian Jewish refugee uh, who in 1968 participated in the kidnapping for ransom of heiress Barbara Jan Mackle in Decatur, Georgia. Her boyfriend and co-conspirator, Gary Stephen Chris, was captured after a two-day police chase, but Ruth fled, remained free for an additional 79 days. 
finally captured, sentenced to seven years in prison, and then released on parole after four years and deported to Honduras. Uh, okay, now let's take a brief look at some of the greatest FBI agents of all time. And then we're going to dig into the behavioral science unit for the remainder of this suck. But before we do that, time for a quick sponsor break. Thank you for supporting the sponsors that sponsor us and support us here at TimeSuck. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. 
rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. A special agent, Robert Lamphere, grew up a short drive from the Suck Dungeon in Idaho's Silver Valley. Uh, grew up in Mullen, went to the University of Idaho. He was a vandal, just like Reverend Dr. Paisley, right? Just a couple kids who weren't able to uh, get into Gonzaga like me. Anywho. Uh, that was just done to antagonize Joe. Uh, Lamphere was one of the FBI's most valuable agents, if not the most valuable during the 40s and 50s. He was responsible for the capture of several Soviet spies involved in extracting military secrets from the U.S. His involvement in the U.S. atomic counter-espionage program led to the unmasking of a spy ring headed by Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were convicted of leaking secrets about the development of the atomic bomb to Russia. He also unmasked Klaus Fuchs, a German theoretical physicist, who had released nuclear uh, secrets in the aftermath of World War II that allowed the Soviets to stage their first nuclear test. Damn you, Klaus! Uh, another hotshot FBI agent, Clyde Tolson. Laredo, Missouri's Clyde Tolson uh, was the FBI's second command for a full 42 years, from 1930 all the way to 1972. Uh, he was the Robin to Hoover's Batman. He was J. Edgar Hoover's closest friend and protege during his years in the FBI, and, and as the rumor goes, uh, his longtime lover as well. Tolson joined the FBI in 1927, moved up to assistant director within three years. Uh, he participated in the arrest of notorious public enemies like Alvin Creepy Carpus, uh, Harry Cranky Rattlesnake Brunette, constantly at Hoover's side. And I did make up the Harry Brunette nickname. I, just, I still keep thinking about all those dumb nicknames. Uh, Hoover and Tolson worked together, spent their spare time together, took vacations together, even buried a few yards from one another. His influence on the director was truly one of the most significant forces in shaping the modern FBI. Uh, you may have heard the next FBI agent as Deep Throat. His actual name was Mark Felt before Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks. It, uh, rare for a whistleblower to become as well-known, uh, you know, or to become a well-known public figure. Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, became legendary for providing inside information on the Watergate scandal. Uh, taking his codename from the 1970s porn movie, Deep Throat, easy sarsaparilla. Uh, Felt frequently met with reporters Woodward and Bernstein in order to give them the intelligence which the FBI was uncovering during its own investigation to the infamous break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters. Uh, this intelligence would eventually lead to the resignation of President Nixon. This information was crucial in revealing to the world the full extent of the cover-up, uh, you know, in the CIA, FBI, even the president's office. Throat's identity remained a mystery until 30 years after the events of the Watergate scandal when he was outed in uh, Vanity Fair magazine. Our next agent infiltrated the mafia for almost three decades. That's longer than most games of Monopoly. Uh, Joaquin Jack Garcia, one of the most successful moles of all time infiltrating the Gambino crime family for a record-breaking uh, period of 26 years. 
That's, that's insane. To work undercover for 26 years. Uh, born in Cuba in the early 50s, the imposing six foot four Garcia successfully played dozens of underworld roles in over 100 different uh, operations, with many of his stings being orchestrated simultaneously. Uh, the most prominent of his performances was as Jack Falcone, a supposed Sicilian thief and drug dealer. Thanks to Garcia's impressive record, he's often referred to as the FBI's greatest undercover agent. Wonder how many, wonder how many cool nicknames right, he had over those 26 years. Hey, Johnny Two Squirrels, Messina. You ever met uh, Eddie Hungry Grizzly DeZuno? You ever met Sammy Tall Cockroach Lombardi? You ever shook hands with Vincenzo Huckleberry Pancakes Luigi? Uh, immortalized in the 1997 film Donnie Brasco, FBI agent John, uh, Joe Pistoni, another undercover special agent with nerves of steel. In the mid-1970s, the FBI needed an agent who was willing to spend several years undercover in the uh, Bonanno crime family in order to uh, get convictions against its most prominent members. They needed someone of Italian descent, someone who could speak Italian, and most importantly, someone who, who wouldn't break. Bastoni joined the mob masquerading as Donnie Brasco, an Italian jewel thief. His five-year stint with the family made him one of the uh, longest-lasting undercover agents in history. His testimony led to the conviction of over 30 gangsters in that organization. Damn you, Donnie Brasco! Donnie Lion Barracuda Brasco, Donnie Sneaky Woodpecker Brasco, Donnie Club Sandwich with a side of potato salad, the guy with the, the red potatoes, not too much egg, Brasco, you son of a bitch. I'll stop now. Okay, now it's time back to, uh, now it's time to circle back and dig into the BSU for finally, see, we did a lot of context with the FBI, now we're at the Behavioral Science Unit. 1972, it was created to investigate serial rape and homicide cases, uh, originally 10 agents and part of the training division. 1976, FBI supervisory special agents Johnny Douglas and Robert Ressler, members of the Behavioral Science Unit, began working on and compiling a centralized database of serial offenders. Serial killer investigation, here we come. 1984, serial killer uh, hunting became official. President Reagan announced the formation of the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, and its mission was to identify and track serial killers. Uh, at the same time, the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program began. It was formed to link serial crimes across jurisdictions using a computer program. And then in 1984 as well, the Behavioral Science Unit split into the Behavioral Science Unit and the Behavioral Science Investigation or Investigative Supportive Unit. Again, more acronyms. The, uh, the Behavioral Science Unit became primarily responsible for the training of FBI National Academy students in, the, in a variety of specialized topics concerning the behavior and social sciences. And the Behavioral Science Investigative Supportive Unit, uh, Support Unit, became primarily responsible for the investigation of criminals. As you can see, the Behavioral Science Unit was uh, always just a small piece of a much larger investigative puzzle, one of many different FBI research tools, practices, and acronyms. Uh, it just happened to capture the public imagination in a lot bigger way than most other FBI units. Maybe because being a good profiler, uh, you know, appears to have like an element of almost magic to it. Like if you're a good profiler, you can end up looking like a true psychic. Someone who could, you know, given some clues from an attack or some data from similar attacks or, you know, attackers can, can paint a psychological portrait of a killer and predict future attack patterns. Uh, today, the BSU has evolved into, among other things, the Behavioral Analysis Unit, conduct specialized and applied training for new FBI agents and intelligence analysts attending the FBI National Academy. Uh, the BAU conducts, con conducts training, research, and does consultations in areas from juvenile crime to terrorism to stress management and law enforcement. Uh, within the BAU are five smaller units known by their numbers. Behavioral Analysis Unit 1 deals with counterterrorism, arson, and bombings. Uh, BAU Unit 2 uh, handles threats, uh, you know, cybercrime, public corruption, 
Unit three investigates crimes against children. Unit four investigates crimes against adults. Also runs VICAP, a database where characteristics of a crime, murder, sexual assault, kidnapping, or missing persons can be entered in and compared to other crimes with similar characteristics. This helps law enforcement, obviously, solve crimes take place in different states. And then unit five handles research strategy and instruction. Uh, because jurisdiction in the U.S. is split between federal and local authorities, the BAU can't just come in and fight crime wherever it wants, whenever it wants. Uh, the BAU only joins an investigation, according to the FBI's website, when they're asked to assist on a case by members of other federal, state, local, or international law enforcement agencies. Uh, and the BAU doesn't just interpret crime scenes and make profiles of unknown offenders. Uh, as kinds of crime evolve, change forms, grow in frequency, the BAU analyzes these crimes so that law enforcement agencies across the country can solve and prevent these crimes. So they're like a half investigative unit, half a dirtbag think tank. One crime that has tragically grown in frequency in the last 20 years is one we covered two weeks ago on Time Suck, school shootings. The BAU recently published School Shooters, a Threat Assessment Perspective. Uh, I read it. And one of the most interesting things I found was this quote, school shootings and other forms of school violence are not just a school's problem or a law enforcement problem. They involve schools, families, and the communities. An adolescent comes to school with a collective life experience, both positive and negative, shaped by the environments of family, school, peers, community, and culture. Out of that collective experience come values, prejudices, biases, emotions, and the student's response to training, stress, and authority. His or her behavior at school is affected by the entire range of experiences and influences. No one factor is decisive. By the same token, however, no one factor is completely without effect, which means that when a student has shown signs of potential violent behavior, schools and other community institutions do have the capacity and the responsibility to keep that potential from turning real. And that, to me, was a very clinical way of saying, don't just keep your eye on the kid with a trench coat. You might think you can see a school shooter coming, but you're wrong. So take every red flag, every threat seriously. Just because some kid seems to have their shit together, comes from a seemingly good family, doesn't mean they can't be a future Dylan Klebold or Eric Harris. And the BAU doesn't just study and consult crimes in the U.S. A team of professionals at the FBI Academy teach the tenets of behavioral science around the world. Uh, these people are special agents with advanced degrees in psychology, criminology, sociology, and more. As more info becomes available to consult, as they consult with more experts from around the world, the techniques of the BAU evolve. Uh, sadly, Despite evolving a lot the last few decades, profilers still have a hell of a time protecting who, predicting who's burying bodies in the woods. Uh, psychologist Harvey Schlossberg, former director of psychological services for the New York Police Department, says profiling is still really as much of an art as it is a science. Okay, now that we know a little bit about the, the BAU, formerly the BSU, uh, let's take a look at how the field of behavioral science and the tool of profiling originated. The first offender profile was assembled by Scotland Yard detectives on the personality of Jack the Ripper, serial killer who murdered a series of prostitutes in the 1880s. We sucked Jack back on May 11, 2018. Modern criminal profiling began in the U.S. with a hunt for a criminal nicknamed the Mad Bomber, who planted dozens of bombs in a variety of locations in New York City, evaded capture for 16 years in the 40s and 50s. In 1956, no closer to capturing him than they'd been 16 years prior, fed up police officers consulted psychiatrist James Brussel. And Brussel provided them with an incredibly detailed picture of the man who was planting these bombs. Most specifically, that he was an unmarried man who wore a double-breasted suit. He even said that the suit would be buttoned up when the police caught him. And when police eventually did arrest the bomber, George Metesky, at his apartment on January 21st, 1957, he was indeed single and wearing a buttoned-up, double-breasted suit. 
Could it have been a lucky guess informed by fashion at the time? Yes. Were a bunch of Brussels uh, other predictions wrong? Yes. But because Metesky was caught, profiling took root as a legitimate investigative tool. The media dubbed Brussels the Sherlock Holmes of the couch. Uh, throughout the rest of the 50s, 60s, early 70s, the teaching of investigative tools to police officers was disorganized and often contradictory a lot of the times. If behavioral science was going to be exactly that, a science, there needed to be some standardization. The two men who were most instrumental in developing the theories and techniques used by the BAU today uh, were two dudes I briefly mentioned earlier, FBI Supervisory Special Agents John E. Douglas and Robert Ressler. Uh, let's learn about them and about many of the techniques they developed that are still used today and go over some darkly fascinating interviews. My favorite part of this suck uh, that they conducted with some of America's most notorious serial killers in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Robert Ressler was born on February 21st, 1937 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, when a Windy City murder known as the Lipstick Killer, William Herons began killing in 1946. Young Robert followed the coverage of the crimes in the local newspaper very intensely. Uh, wasn't, uh, you know, frightened. He was fascinated. Only nine years old, he already knew he wanted to catch killers like William. After graduating high school, he attended two years at a local community college before joining the Army, where he was stationed in Okinawa. After serving for two years, he then attended the criminology program at Michigan State University. He started graduate work before enlisting in the Army again, this time becoming a provost marshal in Aschaffenburg, Germany. <sighs> Sorry, I paused on that word because I was like, oh, and I think I, I think I kind of nailed it. I think I nailed it. Uh, his future FBI teammate, John Douglas, was born in Brooklyn, New York, June 18th, 1945, like wrestler. He would also join the Army, spending four years in the U.S. Air Force from 1966-1970. After that, he got a bachelor's degree in sociology, master's in education psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and a Ph.D. in comparing techniques for teaching police officers how to classify a homicide for Nova Southeastern University in Davie, Florida. That's, that's a very specific Ph.D. I'm sorry, what was your Ph.D. in? Comparing techniques for teaching police officers how to classify homicide. C comparing techniques for what? Never mind. I got a PhD in Nevermind. I got another PhD. Just fucking, just forget about it. Uh, if you've seen Mindhunter, a very popular show, the character of Holden Ford, based heavily on John Douglas. Uh, John wrote the book. The show is based on Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. Uh, Mindhunter special agent Bill Tench is based on agent Robert Ressler. Uh, FBI profilers Jason Gideon and David Rossi from Criminal Minds, also based on Douglas. Also, Douglas provided analysis in the John Bonet Ramsey case we covered on Time Suck and concluded that neither her father, John, nor her mother, Patsy, uh, nor their son, Burke, were responsible for the death of John Bonet. So he thinks no one in the family did it. Uh, 1970, Robert Ressler joined the FBI at the age of 33. That same year, John Douglas also joins the FBI, working initially as a field sniper on the FBI SWAT team before transitioning to a hostage negotiator. Uh, 1972, as mentioned earlier, the FBI establishes the Behavioral Science Unit. Here we go! Now we're cooking uh, uh, in Quantico, you know, uh, Virginia at the FBI Academy. Instructors Patrick Milani and Howard Teton, they formed the unit, originally made of 10 agents in response to a rising wave in sexual assault and homicide during the early 70s. Uh, agent Teton was, a, and also in the 60s, it was right. Uh, agent Teton was a criminologist. Agent Milani had a master's in psychology. By 1976, uh, agents Ressler and Douglas, also members of the BSU, because there were so many active serial killers in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, solving those crimes became uh, suddenly very important, more important than ever. And since some of these serial killers had been caught, uh, there were more and more of them in prison, and they could be interviewed. 
The FBI realizes these killers might hold secrets to prevent future crimes. So from 1976 to 1979, uh, John Douglas and Robert Ressler and other FBI agents interviewed 36 serial killers. Douglas and Ressler will uh, interview more after those years. Uh, Robert Ressler will coin the term serial killer during his early work with the BSU. I thought that was some cool trivia. He's the guy who you know, came up with serial killer. Uh, 1972, the BSU was asked to get involved with the Ted Bundy case after Bundy escaped from a courthouse in Aspen, Colorado. And he escaped from that courthouse library uh, while preparing for his upcoming murder trial. Pro probably need to resuck Bundy. Only devoted 43 minutes to that psychopath back in 2016. Not, not enough suck for Bundy. Uh, since investigators had already captured Bundy once before, the BSU was less concerned with developing his profile, more concerned with analyzing Bundy's history of victims to warn possible future victims. So they warned young, pretty girls with dark hair parted down the middle, watch out for a dude who looked, you know, exactly like Ted Bundy. Uh, the hunt for Bundy ended up in advancing the, or ended up advancing the FBI's ability to track a killer down from state to state. Because Bundy hadn't just killed in one state, local authorities were slow to put together a full picture of his national crimes. To tackle this problem in the future, the BAU started a national database based on modus operandi, personality, and victim type, VICAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Uh, it would become operational in 1985. Uh, years later, after interviewing Bundy, Ressler said that Bundy was, quote, an animal. Ressler reported he still felt uncomfortable years later about the conversations he had with Bundy, never feeling he was able to understand Bundy, and in fact felt concerned Bundy understood more about him than the other way around. Bundy offered to come to the FBI and teach classes about his crimes and motives and offer the FBI refused because, you know, they were smart not to trust Bundy. According to Robert Ressler, Ted Bundy was a master of his game. And I wish I could have found excerpts of the BSU's interviews with Bundy. We looked and looked, couldn't find specifically those excerpts. Uh, did find more details on our next piece of shit and former suck subject of episode 68, murder clown, John Wayne Gacy. Between 1972 and 1978, Gacy lured 33 young men to his house in Chicago where he murdered them, buried many of their bodies in his crawl space. At the time of his arrest, Gacy was the most prolific American serial killer in history and, weird coincidence, from the exact same neighborhood as the man who had coined the term serial killer, Agent Robert Ressler. Uh, in fact, Ressler claims that the two were in the Boy Scouts together. How weird is that? They're in the Boy Scouts together. Gacy was an important case for the BSU because he was the first organized serial killer that Ressler interviewed. And the two had frank and very graphic discussions about his crimes. And the Gacy interviews led to Ressler and Douglas uh, developing their organized, disorganized dichotomy serial killer theory. They found that the main way that serial killers differed from one another was they were either organized, you know, they cased houses, carefully selected their victims, cleaned up evidence after the murder, or they were unorganized, right? Victims were selected at random. The killer usually left blood or fingerprints behind. Organized killers, they found, tended to be older, you know, have stable jobs, be active in their communities, disorganized, unorganized killers, uh, usually mentally ill or, or under the influence of drugs. Uh, Gacy and Bundy, as well as Dennis Rader, a, uh, AKA the BT, AKA the BTK killer. Whew. I realize those acronyms back to back were going to be trouble. Um, classic examples of organized killers. And BTK also a suck subject, uh, episode 63. Uh, they planned their murders in advance. They kept control throughout their kills. They took care to hide their bodies. Through, Ga through Gacy's interview, Ressler found that organized killers also often had uh, something they did again and again during the crimes, part of their modus operandi. Uh, for Gacy, it was the old handcuff trick. I'll never forget about that after learning about it. That suck. Uh, he asked boys if he could show them, you know, how to get out of a pair of handcuffs. And he'd use this, uh, you know, quote unquote trick to get boys to allow him to put handcuffs on them that they could not get out of. And then if you remember from that suck, he unleashed hell upon them. Uh, disorganized killers, on the other hand, were people like Ed Gein, 
subject of Bonus Suck 17, the killer who got to start digging up the corpses of women who resembled his mom before he graduated to murdering women that resembled mommy. Uh, the fact that Gein's house was falling apart, he could barely hold a job, evidence of his murders was all over his home, weird evidence, uh, nipple belt, anyone? Uh, this made him a classic disorganized killer. I mean, dude pranced around the farm under the moonlight wearing a fucking human skin suit. Uh, if you recall, Gein practically told people he killed when they asked him. People just didn't believe him. Remember that? Some locals asked Ed if he, uh, this is before his arrest, obviously, if he knew where Mary Hogan, a local tavern owner, was, uh, a woman that Ed did murder. And he said, she's at the farm right now. I went and get her my pickup and took her home. And they thought he was kidding. And nah, he wasn't. He wasn't kidding. He, he did do that. Uh, back to Gacy. Check out what Ressler said about Gacy when he interviewed him. Uh, or when interviewed about, sorry, spending time about interviewing Gacy uh, while on death row by the LA Times. He said, Gacy was an overweight, middle-sized, intelligent, and articulate man who attempted to show his power by ordering lunch. Ressler said he, by snapping his fingers, he summoned a guard and had a conversation with him as if the guard were a waiter in a fancy restaurant. Ressler added, Gacy hoped that we were impressed by his ability to command thing, that things happen even while he was on death row. So that clown, that literal clown, God, he so badly wanted to be the big shot. He craved that power. Uh, when asked about his victims, Gacy told Ressler that they were worthless little queers and punks. Wrestler challenged him on that statement asking, aren't you a homosexual too? And Gacy responded that his victims were young run runaways while he was a respected and successful businessman. And then Gacy explained that he was too busy at work to date and romance women following his divorce. So, you know, he just settled for quick sex with transient young men that he then had to kill. Think about how fucked up Gacy's mind is here, right? He doesn't tell Wrestler, I know what I did was wrong. I'm sorry. If I could take it all back, you know, I would. I, uh, it's terrible what I did. They didn't deserve it. I'm, I'm sick. You know, I, I should have been strong enough to, to seek help much earlier. No, even in prison, years after the murders, where he's had thousands and thousands of hours to do self-reflection, you know, he's still talking like he didn't do anything wrong. Ah, I killed him. So what? What? It's not like they were real people. Come on. They were transient homos. <laughs> Which wasn't even true, if you recall, you know, from that suck. Well, what was I supposed to do? Between all my clowning and pogo and patches at local hospitals. You know, do you volunteer at children's hospitals? I did. Between all my volunteer work. With the JCs and running my own business, PDM contractors, giving kids a lot of work, you know. Between all that good, I didn't have time to date women. So I did what any reasonably red-blooded American man would do. I would invite teenage boys over to my home and you know, pick them up at the bus stop or, you know, whatnot. And I'd trick them into putting on handcuffs and I would sodomize them and strangle them and I'd bury them in the crawl space. <laughs> what was I supposed to do? Just jerk off and fall asleep like some schmuck? Uh, before he was executed, Gacy painted wrestler a painting of himself dressed like a clown. Such a fucking psychopath. And on the back it said, Dear Bob Wrestler, you cannot hope to enjoy the harvest without first laboring in the fields. Best wishes and good luck. Sincerely, John Wayne Gacy, June 1988. Uh, wrestler asked what it meant, and Gacy replied, Well, Mr. Wrestler, you're the criminal profiler. You're the FBI. You figured out. Fucking with people's minds until the very end. Enjoy the harvest. Is that what he thought he was doing back in, uh, you know, when he was killing those uh, 33 young men and boys harvesting? Uh, Gacy invited Wrestler to come to his execution, and the profiler refused. <laughs> What a weird invite. Uh, would you like to come to my execution? I mean, I'm going to be executed, executed next week. It would be great if you could stop by. Uh, unremorseful to the very end, Gacy's final words, if you recall from that suck, uh, when he was killed by lethal injection on May 10th, 1994, were kiss my ass. <laughs> I mean, I said this before. For a colossal piece of shit, those are some pretty sweet final words. Oh, I'm going to execute you. Kiss my ass. Uh Another one of the most uh, famous profiled shit faces we've covered over the years, uh, Suckasode 123's Ed Kemper. 
Mother, do not get my zapples riled. Do not, do not make me get my stick. For a hideous refresher, Ed Kemper murdered 10 people, regularly engaged in necrophilia. He was a monster, shot his grandparents, <laughs> fucked his mom's neck after he cut her head off, uh, found guilty of all this horrible stuff. Uh, November 8th, 1973, actually requested the death penalty, given eight consecutive life sentences instead, currently incarcerated in California. Uh, agents John Douglas, Robert Resser, both interviewed Kemper multiple times over the years. And this is what Douglas had to say about first meeting Kemper. The first thing that struck me when they brought me in was how huge this guy was. I'd known that he was tall and had been considered a social outcast in school and in the neighborhood because of his size, but up close, he was enormous. He could easily have broken any of us in two. He had longish dark hair and a full mustache, wore an open work shirt and a white t-shirt that prominently displayed a massive gut. It was also apparent before long that Kemper was a bright guy. Prison records listed his IQ at 145, and at times during the many hours we spent with Bob, Robert Ressler, uh, yeah, sorry, at times during the many hours we spent with him, Bob, Robert Ressler and I, worried he was a lot brighter than we were. He'd had a long time to sit and think about his life and crimes, and once he understood that we had carefully researched his files and would know if he was bullshitting us, he opened up and talked about himself for hours. His attitude was neither cocky and arrogant, nor remorseful and contrite. Rather, he was cool and soft-spoken, analytical and somewhat removed. In fact, as the interview went on, it was often difficult to break in and ask a question. The only times he got weepy was in recalling his treatment at the hands of his mother, true narcissist. Right? Feels no real emotion, no sadness when talking about, uh, you know, picking up hitchhiking co-eds who'd never done a damn thing to him and stabbing and strangling him in the woods. Uh, Douglas said, we ended up doing several lengthy interviews with Kemper over the years, each one informative, each one harrowing in its detail. Here was a man who had coldly butchered intelligent young women in the prime of their lives, yet I would be less than honest if I didn't admit that I liked Ed. <laughs> he was friendly, open, sensitive, and had a good sense of humor. Mother, they think I'm funny. If only you would have laughed more of my jokes, mother, none of this would have happened. I wouldn't have had to put your cat's head on a stick. And he says, uh, as much as you can say such a thing in this setting, I enjoyed being around him. I don't want him walking down the streets and in his most lucid moments, neither does he. But my personal feelings about him then, which I still hold, do point up an important consideration for anyone dealing with repeat violent offenders. Many of these guys are quite charming, highly articulate, and glib. I mean, that is a good message there. Just because someone's charming, you know, it seems like they uh, have their shit together, maybe good-natured fun, doesn't mean they won't put your body in a trunk. So that's, that's a fun reassuring message. Uh, Douglas also says, quite clearly, some types of killers are much more likely to repeat their crimes than others. For the violent, sexually-based serial killers, I find myself agreeing with Dr. Park Dietz that it's hard to imagine any circumstance under which they should be released to the public again. Ed Kemper, who's a lot brighter and has a lot more in the way of personal insight than most of the other killers I've talked to, acknowledges candidly that he should not be let out. Ah, uh, exactly. They should not be let out. Unreal to me that some countries still have maximum sentencing laws. Right? When someone kills like Kemper killed, ah, there's no rehabilitation. There's no reason to ever let him out again. Uh, Ressler had a, a much more exciting interview than this one with Kemper. Uh, <laughs> at the end of one of his interviews with Kemper, when he went in solo, Ressler pressed the button that would notify the guard to come get him. But then no one came. 15 minutes later, he pressed it again. Still no guard. Kemper said, and this was recorded on the interview tape, relax, they're changing shifts, feeding the guys in the secure areas. Might be 15, 20 minutes before they come and get you. And then Kemper said, if I went apeshit in here, you'd be in a lot of trouble. I could screw your head off and place it on the table to greet the guard. Uh, Wrestler was nervous. <laughs> yeah. 
course he was. This wasn't me saying this. Some comic or podcaster likes to throw out dark humor for shock value sometimes. Uh, a six foot nine, 300 pound serial killer who had taken people's heads off was saying this to him. How terrified would you be? Kemper could have easily overpowered and killed him. And Rutzler thought there was a real possibility he was going to do that. that he was going to die in that interview room. Tried to keep his cool. He warned Kemper that he would get in big trouble for killing an agent. Kemper scoffed. He was already serving eight life terms. He teased, what would they do? Cut off my TV privileges? Kemper's a piece of shit, but he's pretty funny. Come on, dude. Who do you think you're threatening? I shot my fucking grandparents. Cut my mom's tongue out and push it in the garbage disposal. Killing you wouldn't even be in the top 10 of the worst shit I've ever done. Uh, Ressler felt that uh, only his techniques as a psychological profiler stood between him and certain death. Over the next 30 minutes, 30 more minutes before a guard finally shows up. What kind of shit show is going on in this prison? Uh, he tried to keep the highly intelligent Kemper off balance. At one point, Kemper acknowledged that if he killed Ressler, he would have to spend some time in the hole. But then he added, oh, that'd be a small price to pay for the prison prestige of often an FBI agent. How much sweat do you think trickled down Ressler's ass crack when Kemper said that? Maybe like a teaspoon? Maybe a tablespoon? Uh, Ressler decided to try and bluff him and asked, uh, you don't seriously think I'd come in here without some sort of way to defend myself, do you? But Kemper knew better. He said, they don't let anybody bring guns in here. Ressler doubled down. He said, I have special privileges to bring in a weapon. Kemper was like, nah. He looked him over and said, well, what do you got? Poison pen? <laughs> Guessing another uh, tablespoon of flop sweat just poured down his ass crack. 10 minutes later, the guards finally show up, escort Kemper away. As Kemper is walking out, he puts one of his enormous hands on wrestler's shoulder, smiles at him and says, you know, I was just kidding, don't you? Again, murdering piece of shit, but pretty funny. Uh, this is my favorite interview they did. Maybe a weird term to use, but most interesting. Uh, in the summer of 1974, wrestler and Douglas interviewed an elderly Albert Fish, cannibal, sexual torturer, serial killer, uh, the Brooklyn vampire who once boasted of killing over 100 people. Here's a bit from the transcript of that interview. Uh, Douglas, Albert, what would you say was your primary motivation for your killings? What, what drove you to murder? Uh, Fish, showbiz. That's how I do it in Hollywood. Wrestler, Albert, who are they? Fish, big shots and hubbubs. Movie moguls and producers putting bear cats and shebas on Tinseltown big screens. Showbiz. Douglas, and what do these so-called big shots and hubbubs do out in Hollywood, Albert? Albert, why'd they drink apple cider, my boy? They make piping hot peanut butter and get it laughed up straight off that backdoor spigot. Wrestler, Albert, what are you referring to when you speak of peanut butter? Albert, are you daft? Some kind of wet blanket? Everybody drinks cider. Even Mrs. Grundy enjoys a little peanut butter. Enough of this phone is baloney. Douglas, um, uh, 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 Albert, well, you know it's the best when the poop hits your chest. That's how I come. I'll shoot my seed when your ass starts to bleed. That's how I come. That's how I come. Uh, and then the investigators just kind of walked out of the room. Of course, that never happened. Uh, Albert Fish was executed in 1936. I just thought that'd be fun for some longtime suckers. Uh, on to a real interview now. <laughs> one that's even maybe more fucked up than what I just made up. Uh, a killer who hasn't gotten the time suck treatment yet, though his insane reasons for killing and the gruesome things he did with victims' bodies uh, certainly put him up there. Some of time sucks worst. Richard Chase, good old Dick Chase, the vampire of Sacramento. Have you heard of this guy? Born on May 23rd, 1950, Sacramento, California. Uh, by age 10, exhibited all three characteristics of the now considered archaic, but still interesting, McDonald triad, bedwetting, arson, Cruelty to animals. Uh, as he grew older, Chase developed severe hypochondria, often complained that his heart would occasionally stop beating. 
or that someone had stolen his pulmonary artery. As kids are wont to do, uh, he'd hold oranges on his head, believing that vitamin C uh, would be absorbed into his brain via diffusion. <laughs> All pretty normal so far, JK. Uh, Chase also believed that his cranial bones had become separated and were moving around. So he shoved his head, <laughs> so, excuse me, so he shaved his head so he could monitor what was going on under, under his scalp so he could keep an eye on his bones moving around. So clearly he had a lot of shit going on. Uh, guessing he's going to be classified as a disorganized serial killer. Uh, after leaving his mom's house because he believed she was attempting to poison him as he grew older, he rented an apartment with friends. Uh, when he was alone in the apartment, he began to capture, kill, and disembowel various animals and then would devour them raw. Yeah! Uh, sometimes he would mix the raw organs with... Co <laughs> so ridiculous. With Coca-Cola in a blender and then drink it. Showbiz! Uh, Chase believed that by ingesting the creatures, he was preventing his heart from shrinking. All right. Okay, a little bit of logic there, I guess. Uh, Chase spent a brief uh, brief amount of time in a psychiatric ward in 1973. Of course he did. Uh, then he was released in 1976. He was involuntarily committed to a mental institution after he wound up in the hospital for injecting rabbit's blood into his veins. I picture the head of the hospital psychiatric ward saying, uh, here we go. If I had a nickel for every time someone was admitted to my psychiatric unit for injecting rabbit blood in their veins, I would have one fucking nickel. What the hell is... Uh, at the hospital, Chase broke the necks of two birds he caught through the window, drank their blood, <laughs> also extracted blood from therapy dogs with stolen syringes. My God, dude needed some blood. Give him some Give him some bags of blood for God's sake so he can leave the therapy dogs alone. Uh, Chase was promptly diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Weird. He seemed, he seemed so stable. Uh, after undergoing a battery of treatments involving psychotropic drugs, Chase was deemed no longer a danger to society. Uh, later, 1976, he's released into his mother's custody, hoping, hopefully with some kind of warning, right? Keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on him. Don't let him get near a syringe. Keep an eye on your blood. Check your blood levels when you wake up. Make sure he wasn't siphoning it overnight. Uh, roommates complained that Chase was constantly high on marijuana or LSD or drunk when he got out. And yes, he was released from his mother's custody. <laughs> and Or when he was released, you know, into her custody, she went and found him in an apartment with roommates. She didn't want him living with her. Not sure Chase had the right mind for LSD. Seems like a bad choice for him. December 29th, 1977, Chase kills a man in a drive-by shooting. Uh, the victim, Ambrose Griffin, 51, was an engineer, father of two. It was a total random killing. Two weeks later, he attempts a home invasion, but since the doors were locked, he just leaves. He tried this a few more times. Later, he would tell police that unlocked doors meant, uh, you know, he was supposed to go in, you know, uh, if you know, because like, he's like a vampire. If they're locked, uh, you don't go in. If they're unlocked, well, then they welcome you to the home. Uh, did I mention he was batshit crazy? Uh, once he was caught by a couple as he went through their belongings. Uh, turns out he had pissed on and taken a shit on their baby's bed, which makes sense. Uh, you know, you can't break into somebody's house and not take a shit on the baby's bed. January 23rd, 1978, he breaks into a house, shoots Teresa Wallen, three months pregnant at the time, uh, shoots her three times, then has sex with her corpse while stabbing her with a butcher knife, then removes multiple organs, then cuts off one of her nipples and drinks her blood. Still not done. Then stuffs dog shit down her throat before leaving. What the fuck? How have we not done a show about this guy yet? This guy's beyond a monster. Uh, January, you know, January 27th, just four days later, he enters the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Maroth, encounters her friend Danny Meredith, whom he shoots with his 22 handgun, then takes Meredith's wallet and car keys, then shoots uh, Maroth, killing her, uh, then kills her six-year-old son, Jason, and her 22-month-old nephew, David Ferreira. Then he has sex with Evelyn's corpse. Then he eats some of her body. Then someone knocks on the door. It startles him. He hops in Danny Meredith's car. He takes young David Ferreira's body with him. 
Uh, in January of 78, Agent Wrestler, Robert Wrestler, gets a call from the Sacramento Police Department. Yeah, he gets brought up to speed on all this shit. With the vampire case, for the first time, Agent Wrestler of the BSU is now an active part of a serial killer investigation. Like an ongoing investigation, Wrestler's immediate profile predicts the following. Uh, one, the killer will be a single white male. Two, he will be between 25 and 27. Three, he's going to be thin, going to look malnourished. Uh, four, his home is going to be dirty and unkempt. There's going to be evidence of the murder inside the house. Five, he's going to have a history of mental illness, maybe using drugs. Six, a loner who spends most of his time at home, is unemployed, um, might be on disability, probably suffering from paranoid psychosis. Wrestler gives his official profile to the Sacramento PD, and he also determines that the killer is going to live within one or two, uh, a one or two mile radius of where Danny Meredith's car was abandoned. And Wrestler is right about almost all of this. Uh, his profile, however, did not help catch Richard Chase. An accidental run-in with an old high school classmate did. Shortly after the Maroth House murders, the police get a phone call from a woman who'd ran into someone she used to go to high school with, a 30-year-old man named Richard Chase. The woman is deeply disturbed by the encounter with her former classmate. Chase looked malnourished, thin, disheveled. He had a yellow crust around his mouth, uh, wearing a sweatshirt covered in blood. That's not a good look. That's the look of a dude with a bit too much rabbit blood running around his veins. Look of a guy who's been shitting in too many baby beds. Uh, Chase tries to get into her car. She's able to lock him out, drive away, calls the police as soon as she gets home. And when police look into the call, they realize that Chase lived less than a block from where Danny Meredith's car had been abandoned, less than five miles from two of the crime scenes. Police search Chase's apartment and accurate to wrestler, uh, wrestler's prediction, they find that the walls, floor, ceiling, refrigerator, uh, just covered with blood, right? Chase is eating and drinking utensils soaked in victim's blood. Uh, and no, he was not still living with roommates at the time. <laughs> that would be that'd be too fucked up. Hey, man, you think we should call the police on Chase? Or we should call at least the landlord. I'm sick of all the blood, you know? I'm sick of all the blood. I'm sick of all the shit. I'm sick of all the shit and the blood. Uh, Chase arrested. Wrestler gets to interview him. Quickly becomes clear that Chase is severely mentally ill. He mostly talks to Agent Wrestler about UFOs and Nazi mind control. <laughs> this guy's This guy's over the top. And then before he goes to trial for six murders, uh, Chase commits suicide the day after Christmas in 1980 by overdosing on antidepressants. Uh, whatever happened to 22-month-old David Ferreira? So sad. Chase drove uh, his body back to his apartment where he cut uh, into David's neck, drank his blood, ate some of his organs, then left what was left of his body at a nearby church. So that was, you know, uh, fun for whoever had to find that poor body. I'm sure they didn't get reoccurring nightmares or recurring nightmares. Uh, Richard Chase, uh, he didn't even seem real to me. He's like a monster from a horror movie. Uh, three more quick hits on dirtbags that the FBI's BSU was involved in with some way. And then we'll be uh, on to a little more info before we close out the show. Another killer that we haven't covered here yet on Time Suck committed a series of murders in Atlanta, aptly nicknamed the Atlanta Child Murderer. Talking about Wayne Williams. Starting in 1979, the bodies of young African-American children, mostly boys, are found discarded throughout the city of Atlanta. All of them have been strangled. Going from 1979 till May of 1981, at least 28 kids, adolescents, adults, you know, killed in this period. At first, the police believe that since the victims are all black children, you know, uh, or mostly children, you know, all African-American, the killings are racially motivated. They think the perpetrator might be a member of the local chapter of the KKK. They don't believe at first that the killings are the work of a serial killer. Why not? At the time, it was believed that serial killers basically were only white men who preyed on young boys or girls, not on a mix of genders and ages. The FBI is called BSU profiler. John Douglas is brought the fuck in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John goes to Atlanta in 1981. He writes his profile. His profile initially perceived as being controversial. Douglas does not believe the murders are hate crimes. 
because the bodies are being dumped in areas that were predominantly or exclusively African-American. He, he suggests that the killer is extremely comfortable being in a predominantly black neighborhood, and that's not something that a Klan member would probably feel. He doesn't think a Klan member would be comfortable enough to dump a body in one of those neighborhoods. He also feels like if the killer is white, he would have been, you know, probably seen, noticed, and someone would have mentioned someone not being from the neighborhood hanging around acting suspicious. Douglas additionally predicts that the killer is going to dump the next body in water to conceal evidence. Based on his profile, Atlanta police stake out the Chattahoochee River. Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. Every time I read that word, I hear that song, little verse. On May 22nd, 1981, at about 3 a.m., an, office hears, or an officer excuse me, hears a big slash, splash in the water. When he runs to look, another officer sees a white 1970 Chevrolet station wagon turn around, drive back across the bridge. Two police cars stop the station wagon about a mile further down the road. Uh, the driver is 23-year-old Wayne Bertram Williams, local music promoter and freelance photographer. An investigation of Williams reveals the exact same carpet fibers found both on him and several victims. Uh, also find a, they also find a nylon cord in his possession that matches marks on some of the victims' necks. Investigators quickly determine you know, how Williams found his victims. He was known to hand out flyers in predominantly black neighborhoods calling for young people ages 11 to 21 to audition for his new singing group called Gemini. And that's how he got him. Williams' trial began on January 6, 1982, ended on February 27th, convicted for the murders of two adults, even though he was suspected of at least 23 other murders, mostly children not convicted for those. Uh, he, he pleaded innocent, never confessed to the additional murders. And I don't think they, they were really pursued because he's already going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Uh, now at the age of 62, he, he maintains his innocence, even though he's been pretty thoroughly sucked on by some other podcasts. I have to give Wayne Williams a time suck treatment someday. Two more dirt bags. Next up, another killer we have not discussed yet in the suck first, Joseph Paul Franklin. Franklin was a drifter who gave FBI profilers a lot of trouble in the days before murder details were shared across state lines. After reading Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, Franklin decided to start a race war uh, as a stable person does. So like Richard Chase, you know, he's uh, obviously got his shit together. In July of 1977, he starts firebombing synagogues. In October of that year, he graduates to murder. Over the next two years, Franklin roams the East Coast, killing whoever he thinks is inferior to him whenever he thinks he can get away with it. He often uses a sniper rifle, picking off victims from a distance. Uh, victims include uh, Hustler Magazine publisher Larry Flint, who he paralyzes on March 6, 1978. And then he also shoots uh, civil rights leader Ver Vernon Jordan on May 29, 1980. The FBI believe that some of the hate crimes Franklin is leaving in his wake are connected to one perpetrator, but they don't have any inkling Franklin is behind them. They don't know the true extent of his crimes either. Uh, in September of 1980, a police officer in Kentucky notices a gun in the back of Franklin's car after he gets pulled over. The officer calls in a record check on Franklin, finds out he has an outstanding warrant, so Franklin's arrested. But then shortly after being brought into the police station, he manages to escape. Then when his impounded car is searched, evidence is found that connects him to a number of shootings throughout the eastern U.S. But without any idea of where Franklin is going, it's impossible to track him down or warn potential victims. So who does the FBI call the BSU? They realize that a, that a drifter right, has their own profile characteristics. Often to finance their drifting, they typically donate blood or rob banks. And really by donate, they, they sell. They sell their plasma. Uh, so the BSU releases a memo to blood banks around the East Coast informing them to keep an eye out for someone matching Franklin's description. And then boom, a few weeks later, blood bank operator in Florida contacts the FBI saying that a man matching Franklin's description came in to donate blood. From there, they trace him to Lakeland, Florida. He's arrested on October 28th, 1980. Uh, got to sell him blood, motherfucker. If only he could have teamed up with Richard Chase, right? Chase could have bankrolled him. Chase gets the blood. Franklin gets the sniper money. Uh, 
Uh, experts put the number of Franklin's victims at at least 15 people, and he's executed on November 20th, 2013 for the first murder he committed. Big points for BSU profiling here, right? Would the police have thought to send an alert to blood banks looking for this guy based on the profile of the average drifter? I doubt it. I, I sure as hell would have. It's pretty impressive. Uh, one last creep we've covered before. Uh, the cannibal of Milwaukee, Jeffrey Dahmer. January 30th, 1992, Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, trial begins. He's indicted on 15 murder charges. During Dahmer's trial, Dahmer's defense lawyers uh, asked Agent Wrestler to testify that Dahmer killed during psychotic episodes. Dahmer interested Wrestler because he didn't fit straightforwardly into the category of either the organized or the disorganized killer. Dahmer acted like an organized serial killer most of the time, made efforts to hide what he was doing, but also lost total control while he was committing his murders. An element Wrestler and Douglas had associated only with disorganized serial killers. Wrestler uh, thought that, you know, um, before Dahmer, that the killers could be either organized or disorganized, but not both. And Wrestler found Dominator fascinating. He was much more open about his experiences and motivations than most other serial killers he'd interviewed. Uh, Gacy, Bundy, and Kemper, for example, all tried to play games with Wrestler. Dahmer, very frank and open. And it also seemed like he really wanted to prevent another serial killer like himself from ever being uh, out there running loose again. Wrestler was able to get Dahmer to open up, really talk to him, partly by not appearing to judge him for any of the heinous shit that he was talking about. Here's a bit from a transcript of one of their interviews. Wrestler. Now he's unconscious or he's dead and you have him and he's not, and you know he's not going anywhere. And, and that was a turn on Dahmer. Right. So later that night, I take the body to the crawl space. I'm, I'm down there and I, I can't sleep that night. So I go back up to the house. The next day, I have to figure out a way to dispose of the evidence by a knife, a, a hunting knife. Go back the next night, uh, slit the belly open and masturbate again. Wrestler. So you were aroused at just the physique. Dahmer. Uh, the internal organs. Wrestler. The internal organs? The act of evisceration? You were aroused by cutting open of the body? Dahmer. Yeah. Then I cut the arm off. Cut each piece. Bagged each piece. Triple bagged in large plastic trash bags. Put them in the back of the car. Then I'm driving to the top evidence. Uh, I'm driving to drop the evidence off a at a ravine 10 miles from my house. Did that at 3 o'clock in the morning. Halfway there, I'm in a deserted country road. And I get pulled over by the police for driving left of center. Guy calls a backup. Squad, two of them there. They do the drunk test. I pass that. It's a flashlight on the back seat. Uh, excuse me, shine the flashlight on the back seat. See the bags. Ask me what it is. I tell them it's garbage. Hadn't gotten around to dropping it off at the landfill. And they believe it, even though there's a smell. So they give me a ticket for driving left to center. And I go back home. Wrestler, get the fuck out of here. It's fucking crazy. No. Uh, holy shit, what a surreal interview. How crazy was Dahmer also? I like when he talks about not being able to get very good sleep laying in the crawl space next to a dead body. Why would you ever think that you would get good sleep in that situation? Damn, I feel good. Oh, man. Slept like a baby last night. How about you, Jeff? Oh, I feel fantastic. Slept like a dude sleeping in a crawl space next to the body some guy he killed and then jerked off on. Sorry, what was that? Uh, Agent Douglas, uh, still around today. Uh, John Douglas, 75, joined some well-earned retirement. Robert Ressler, retired from the FBI in 1990, passed in 2013 in his home in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, 76 years old. Uh, they both ended up writing a variety of books about their experiences. Ressler's most famous book, Whoever Fights Monsters, My 20 Years Tracking Serial Killers for the FBI, has been used to inform many movies and television shows. And Douglas's book, again, Mindhunter, Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, recently adapted into the Netflix series Mindhunter, produced by David Fincher. Charlize Theron, among others. And that will take us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. 
lot of info, a lot of info today. Uh, now that we've went over some of whom Wrestler and Douglas spoke to, uh, before we wrap up, let's go a little more in-depth into their new investigative procedure. Born from many of these conversations, profiling. Uh, from the interviews we've discussed, and even more that would take literally days, if not weeks, to go over, uh, Wrestler and Douglas continued to develop new ways of looking at crime scenes and forming profiles of attackers. Uh, they figured out that the first part, uh, the type of profile, you know, would uh, involve the antecedent, the time before the murder. What fantasy or plan or both did the murderer have in place before the act? Uh, what triggered the murderer to act some days and not others? Think of Ed Kemper, who was often uh, triggered to murder when he received degrading comments from mother. Uh, the second stage, the method and manner of the kill. What type of victim or victims did the murderer select? What was the method and manner of murder? Shooting, stabbing, strangulation, something else? third stage of the crime was the disposal of the body. Did the murder and body disposal take place all at one scene or multiple scenes? Like we saw in the Atlanta child murder case, analyzing how the bodies were disposed could reveal where the killer was comfortable, you know, what places the killer was likely to go again. It would also look at post-offense behavior. Was the murderer trying to inject himself into the investigation by reacting to media reports or contacting investigators? Think about the Zodiac killer we covered back in Bonus Suck 12. Uh, despite all of this information being super interesting, True crime aficionados, not all investigators are big fans of profiling. Uh, their main contention is, okay, this stuff's, yeah, interesting, but like, is it actually helpful? I mean, sometimes, as in the case we just went over of Wayne Williams and Joseph Paul Franklin, I mean, the information clearly has helped. But in the majority of cases, profiling doesn't seem to lead to an actual arrest. And just many wonder if funding a unit like the BSU, BSU is worth it. Uh, could they reallocate the resources somewhere else, somewhere uh, more effective? Uh, here's some different expert perspectives on the usefulness or lack thereof of profiling. Mary Ellen O'Toole, an ex-FBI profiler, says profiling paints a picture of the offender that is a very useful tool to be used in capturing them. But according to criminologist Dan Kennedy, this kind of profiling rests on a fundamental fallacy, what he calls the uh, homolo uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, homology uh, problem or the idea that there's going to be some correlation between your day-to-day -day self and what you do at a crime scene. While it may seem like common sense, that uh, consistent criminal behavior can reflect a consistent personality or character. More frequently, uh, the connection is too weak to actually use. You know, Dahmer, Dahmer wasn't chit-chatting to his factory coworkers about sleeping in the crawl space, jerking off on corpses. Gacy wasn't showing his neighbors the handcuff trick. And then when they couldn't get the cuffs off, uh, talking about the kids that he invited over and sodomized and killed couldn't get out of those cuffs either. You know, Richard Chase, the, the vampire of Sacramento, you know, he wasn't, uh, no, he actually was. He actually was walking around in, uh, public covered in blood. Uh, he was the same dude in regular life that he was when he killed. He, he was out of his fucking mind completely. But in most cases, who a killer is at a crime scene, not who you know he is in other parts of his life, which makes total sense. Most of us, uh, not the same in every different aspect of our lives. I mean, do you act in the same way, talk the same way around your childhood friends uh, like you do with your coworkers uh, or around your parents or grandparents? Would you act like you act when you're out drinking with your friends at 1 a.m. on a Friday night like you would if you were babysitting your five-year-old nephew at noon making him a grilled cheese sandwich. I hope not. You know, you, you kind of uh, act according to the situation. Most of us can uh, read the room a little bit and compartmentalize a little bit. Another problem with profiling is that the uh, characteristic of most killers just doesn't neatly and perfectly fit into a single typology or subcategory. That's just not how most meat sacks work. You know, we're typically a little more unique than that. Uh, a 2018 study by researchers at the University of Liverpool speaks to all this. Uh, a review of 100 cases involving stranger rapists showed the, that similarities between crime scenes had no correlation with similarities between criminals. Uh, said the, the researchers said these findings indicate no evidence for the assumption of uh, homo, 
homology between crime and scene actions, or excuse me, between crime scene actions and background characteristics for the rapists in the sample. I don't know why that word gives me trouble. It's such an easy word, but I look at it, I'm like, I don't know. Uh, furthermore, while the serial killers interviewed by Ressler and Douglas were all remarkably similar, mostly white men who killed in their late 20s and had problems with their moms, according to the Serial Killer Information Center, started by Dr. Mike Amott, a professor of psychology at Radford University, the perspectives and profiles that represent these white men don't represent serial killers in general. His database has identified over 2,600 serial killers. My God, that's a lot. Uh, which Amat defined as somebody who kills at least two people in two separate instances with a cooling off period in between kills. And surprisingly, only 12.5% of U.S. serial killers in Amat's database fit what many like myself have long considered the typical serial killer profile to be. A white male, right, in, in his mid to late 20s. While 92.3% of U.S. serial killers, 94.4% internationally are male, only 52% are white. And only 27% are in their mid to late 20s. Uh, do you know that? I did not know that. Uh, to illustrate the racial diversity of serial killers further, from 1990 to 2010, the most recent year of data in the project, just over 52% of, uh, of U.S. serial killers were white, while 40.3% were black. The numbers don't change much internationally. Worldwide, 56.2% are white, 30% are black. Uh, but for some reason, at least in the U.S., while serial killers seem, uh, or excuse me, white serial killers seem to get a lot more press coverage. And I think because of that, many uh, of us now associate serial killers with white dudes. Uh, here's even more data to illustrate that this is not always the case. Uh, if you combine U.S. serial killers across all decades, 52% of serial killers have been white, 40% black. But if you look at just the past three decades, 37% white, 60% black. Very interesting. Would have never guessed that. Uh, definitely some media bias there. Uh, so it seems like in order for profiling to become more and more effective, you know, the next wrestler and Douglas, you know, type agents need to study a wider range of killer types and ethnicities. Uh, to close things out, let's now briefly go over what Hollywood gets right, what it gets wrong with the FBI, with the, the BSU type agents. Then we'll get what it takes to become a special agent in the, in the BAU today. Over the years, fictional depictions of FBI agents have undergone a number of transformations, which often shift along with American, uh, the American public's view of the agency. We've seen the paranormal investigating power couple Mulder and Scully of the X-Files. God, I used to love that show. Uh, we've seen the coffee-loving, super eccentric Dale Cooper of Twin Peaks. Also love that show, but shit gets real weird towards the end of season two. I mean, it's, the whole thing's weird, but uh, it kind of goes off the rails for me. Uh, there's also the Heroic Squad featured on Criminal Minds. Another show that's fantastic. I actually got to interview Matthew Gray Goobler once, a.k.a. Dr. Spencer Reed, gem of a meat sack. Uh, and then there's the, the many ominous overbearing suits that appear in the background of countless police procedural shows. Same scenario plays out over and over again. You know, Die Hard, Law and Order, Dexter, just to name a few. Stony-faced or smug federal agents swoop in, seize control of a case, shut out local law enforcement who can't stand them. Oh, tropes, why must you be so tropey? Uh, is there any truth to this type of portrayal? According to Jerry Williams, author, retired FBI agent, uh, it's total cliche. Uh, Jerry says, a local detective or sheriff is working on something and the FBI comes in and takes over and just treats everybody terribly. That is the worst. When I see that, I just think, doesn't whoever wrote this have any original ideas? I love it. I think the same shit when I watch a lot of stand-up comedy. Like, seriously, you're going to talk about that again. I've talked about it a thousand times, but okay, again, okay. Uh, in Jerry's experience, because of this trope, FBI agents have to be even nicer, more accommodating because local law enforcement actually do expect them to be rude because of the shit they've been watching on TV and in films their whole lives, right? Media bombardment, bombardment affects all of us, shapes our opinions. If we let it, how could it not? Uh, while it's certainly not a bad thing to be nice, it also can take the focus off the victims of the crime. Uh, Joe Navarro, 
another retired FBI agent, one of the world's leading experts in nonverbal communication and body language, also says this trope is fundamentally untrue. Says when a case falls under FBI jurisdiction, the Bureau typically establishes a task force with local law enforcement agencies as opposed to just kicking them all the fuck off the case. Uh, Additionally, the FBI doesn't always lead an investigation they're involved in. Oftentimes, they're just assisting, right? Navarro recalled uh, working on a kidnapping case in Arizona where the FBI provided over 100 agents just to assist local sheriff's department. You know, know, they're following them. They're leading. Chris Voss, a former FBI hostage negotiator, CEO of the Black Swan Group, a consulting company that teaches businesses and individuals how to negotiate, uh, says that in his experience, most people simply expect FBI agents to be jerks because of what they've seen on TV, and it's not true at all, and on and on and on. I actually tried to find articles about local law enforcement agencies hating working with feds. Could not. Uh, there's also the idea that FBI agents frequently go head-to-head with serial killers in some dramatic way during investigations, like in Silence of the Lambs. Agent Clarice Starling squaring off with both Hannibal Lecter, well, Clarice, had the lamb stop screaming. Uh, also squaring off with Buffalo Bill. Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. It fucked me hard. Uh, to be clear, that was a Buffalo Bill quote. That's not me just saying something super random and creepy, which I do sometimes do. Uh, Criminal Minds also perpetuates the narrative of FBI profilers going head to head with serial killers. More than half of the crimes they investigate committed by serial killers on that show. Uh, while it's all very entertaining to watch, not reflective of reality. Jerry Williams, again, uh, who served as special FBI agent, you know, uh, and investigated, you know, mainly economic crimes, notes that only a very small percentage of agents ever handle those type cases. The life of the average FBI agent is not one as it turns out a nonstop Hollywood action. Uh, Joe Navarro says people have no idea the incredible amount of paperwork the FBI has to do to get anything done. It's a mind-boggling amount of paperwork. Basically, nothing happens uh, as quickly also as it does on TV. Forensic science, not magic. Agent Navarro calls people's misconceptions about what agents actually do the CSI effect. The CSI effect means that people think they know how forensic science works and it gives them an inaccurate impression of law enforcement and unrealistic expectations about how, how long it'll actually take to solve a case. So what do FBI agents do in real life, specifically profilers? And how could you land that job? To join the FBI's BAU, Behavioral Analysis Unit, as a special agent, you must first serve at least three years as a general special agent. Although not required, an advanced degree in forensic or behavioral science, as well as experience in violent crime cases, will help your chances of becoming a BAU agent. To join the BAU as a support staff professional, such as an intelligence research specialist or crime analyst, or crime analyst, (laughs) you need a minimum of a bachelor's degree plus a notable research background and in some cases, law enforcement experience. Uh, The FBI requires all staff members to be U.S. citizens as well. Uh, BAU officers and scientists should be able to perform the following seven duties. Reconstruct a crime based on the evidence. Create a profile of the perpetrator along with distinguishing psychological features and behavioral patterns. Partner with other law enforcement agencies and provide investigative support. Maintain a current database on violent crimes, terroristic actions, and aberrant and aberrant Ab, oh, fucking and fucked up behavior. Uh, <laughs> interview criminals and terrorists in order to obtain insights into their motives and actions. Provide insights into serial criminals, which may assist in apprehension. And finally, come up with super fun animal-based nicknames for mafia members. Stuff like uh, Joy. We got Joy Ostrich Bones, La Russa. Uh, that's uh, that over there in the corner. That's, uh, that's Christopher Two Snail Shells, Petanato. We got uh, Guido, big line with medium paws, but like a regular sized tail Ricci. And then we got Mikey, not exactly like an American goldfinch, but some kind of bird looks like a lot like a goldfinch, but like a little bit bigger beak and a little bit less vibrant well, plumage, Bianchi. You get it. 
Uh, JK, of course. Number seven is develop threat assessments about individuals and groups that pose risks to national or public safety. Once you've met those requirements for selection by the BAU, uh, you also have to uh, run a timed 300-meter sprint. You have to do a certain amount of push-ups. Then you'll be required to complete 500 hours of new FBI agent or personal training, uh, personnel training. And then you have to attend bureau staff development training and annual seminars. A lot of training for good reason. If you complete your training successfully, you'll be awarded your FBI staff credentials uh, for the BAU. But what if I smoke marijuana or do other drugs? Can I still be an FBI agent? Good question, me. Anyone who smoked marijuana within the last three years or used any illegal drug within the last 10 years disqualified from becoming an FBI agent. God damn it. Shroomed and doomed episodes could kill my dreams. Uh, however, you can apply once this time passes. But isn't being an FBI agent incredibly time-consuming? Will I ever have a life outside of work? Can my family know what I do? That's another good question, me. Agents definitely work hard, contribute to protecting national security and stopping crime. But the Bureau also recognizes that their men and women have lives. In fact, the agency offers a part-time program which allows an agent to work 16 to 32 hours a week. This track is designed for working parents who want to balance family and professional responsibilities. And it's likely that your friends and family will know that you work for the FBI, although you may not be able to discuss, you know, certain classified information. But how much money do FBI agents make? Excellent final question, me. Uh, they make roughly a billion dollars a year. Uh, no, as of, uh, as of May 2016, special agents working for the federal government earn a median annual sal salary of about 82000 plus a comprehensive benefit benefits package, uh, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Okay, so we covered a lot today. Uh, the FBI's evolution from a tiny operation with one lonely technician, Special Agent Charles, not now, Apple, uh, to the highly trained and well-funded beast that is today. The FBI's done a lot over the years. Some bad stuff, to be sure. Don't bug my phone. Don't try and destroy my marriage. Uh, they've done a whole lot of good, right? They've developed some of the most important crime-solving technology we currently have, like VICAP, which logs info about hundreds of thousands of unsolved cases, leading to new arrests, convictions every year. And, uh, and though it doesn't exist anymore, the legacy of the BSU, both within the FBI and in Hollywood, is huge. Made famous by traveling FBI instructors Robert Ressler, John Douglas. Uh, a lot of what we know about America's most heinous killers, we know because of the type of work spearheaded by the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. The legacies of Ressler and Douglas, many other FBI profilers since, live on in books, film, and TV shows even if the portrayal is not entirely accurate. Uh, their legacies also live on, more importantly, in the values and skills that the FBI teaches to new recruits every year. So thank you, BSU, other FBI agents, for, uh, for catching dirtbags like, uh, you know, Ed Kemper. Mother! Uh, time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Behavioral Science Unit doesn't exist anymore under that acronym, uh, has evolved into a number of other units and divisions within the government's law enforcement umbrella. Also, behavioral science as a discipline doesn't apply to just one branch of the FBI. Almost every department in the FBI uses some aspects of behavioral science to best protect the United States. Number two, the FBI has a fuck ton of DNA, hair samples, and at one point had some falafel sale info. Operation Falafel Awareness. Number three, FBI agent Robert Ressler, one of the most important members of the behavioral science unit, one of the guys portrayed in Mindhunter, that's the guy who coined the term serial killer. Number four, one FBI agent infiltrated the Italian mafia for 26 years. Imagine how mad you would be if you found out your friend of 26 years was actually your enemy. Ricky the Raccoon Pescatelli. Can't believe Donnie Brasco turned him in. He was a fed. Donnie Lion Barracuda Brasco. Donnie Sneaky Woodpecker Brasco. Donnie Club Sandwich with Santa Potato Salad Brasco. Who'd have thunk it? 
And number five, new info. Incredibly, the FBI didn't switch from paper files to digital until 2012. Still sitting in a cubicle behind a stack of files in 2011. That's what the real agent Starlings were doing. To be fair, the FBI uh, was originally intending to upgrade much earlier, three years earlier to be more precise. However, computer coding issues just put them behind schedule and over budget. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The FBI's behavioral science unit has been sucked. I learned so much. I hope you did uh, You did too. Hope that was a, a, a okay suck a okay episode. Thank you, Space Scissors, for picking it. Uh, was a fun way to revisit some past creeps. Uh, thank you again to the Time Suck team, Queen of, Ma- uh, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Paisley, Bidelixer, Logan, and Kate Keith. Uh, thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery, for producing. Um, again, actually, well, Joe and uh, Zach both helped produce this episode. Thanks to Sophie Evans for helping with the research on this one as well. Uh, thanks to Liz Hernandez, her all-seeing eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Thanks to everyone over at Discord as well. Uh, and, and again, best of luck to everyone using competing. Uh, with our new trivia game in the Time Suck app. Excited to announce that that winner. If you check socials, uh, we'll be announcing that, you know, the day after this episode comes out. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we're going to look into perhaps one of the most successful and beloved Renaissance men of the 20th century. His name was Walt Disney. And as an entrepreneur and artist, he created a media empire through innovation, imagination, and what could certainly be called a, uh, you know, shrewd business sense. Uh, Walt Disney was a man who pushed technology in all his endeavors. He was a movie and TV producer, a pioneering cartoonist, the mind behind amusement parks like Disneyland and Disney World. Uh, the technology he and his team created over the years would revolutionize family entertainment and his company still on the cutting edge of entertainment today. His creations would capture the hearts of millions of children and adults alike for decades before his death in 1966. Man, I can't believe it's been a long time ago. Uh, his company would also go on to become one of the largest, most profitable corporations in the world. The co-founder of the House of Mouse, not just a luminary ahead of his time, also made some very strange choices and surrounded by you know, some not-so-flattering truths, rumors, rumors, and conspiracies. These include claims of racism and sexism, as well as having connections with the Nazis in the 1930s. Uh, also helped Uncle Sam make war propaganda films, was an informant for the FBI, as we learned today, and helped fan the flames of the Red Scare in the 1940s. And of course, there was the rumor that he was cryogenically frozen and buried under the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Disneyland after his death. And there's even crazy conspiracies. Are any of them true? Join us next week for a look into the life and creations of Walt Disney and the strange stories that surround his life and legacy. And now we move on to a very special edition of Time Sucker Updates. Uh, Sorry, it's just one message this week. It's a very special, very long message, but a very important message. Uh, I moved the messages I was going to include in this week to next week. Let's get into today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Today's message comes from Kenya, going to leave his last name out for privacy, who says that it's, quote, still very hard for me to to call it a cult, referring to the Tony and Susan Alamo cult. As a young man and even being able to see a side of Tony that most people didn't, he was very careful not to let too much crazy out. It's still mind-boggling to think that people dedicated their lives to staying and defending his actions. And here is Kenya's message about being inside the Tony and Susan Alamo cult. Hi, Dan. Hi, Joe. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. I never thought it would be this hard to talk eight to ten minutes about something that happened almost 20 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, my mom met Tony in 1987 uh, after he had gotten divorced from Brigida 
uh, shortly after they met, they got married by somebody in the church. Uh, Tony signed, uh, the person that officiated signed their, their marriage certificate, my, and Tony signed on the other line. Uh, this all happened before I ever even met Tony. I think I talked to him once on the phone before my mom called me to tell me that she was married. Wow. And we're moving into the, to the church. Um, she had been on a hunt for God, uh, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. We had gone to several different churches, different denominations of churches, uh, throughout LA. Um, and somehow he found her, um, didn't, she didn't look like, uh, Susie or Brigitte at all. She was actually uh, dark-haired. Most people think she's Native American. Um, very pretty. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not biased in that opinion at all. But um, my, she was trying to be an actress. That's why we moved, why she moved to Los Angeles when I was five. And she was just about there. She had been in a few things, different play productions, music videos, whatever. Uh, and then Tony came along and she gave all that up to be his wife. So I had very few options. Um, uh, Tony told me the first time I talked to him that I had three. One was to move into the church and become uh -huh. a child of God and give up my sinning ways. Two was to go and live with my ungodly and reprobate father who didn't care about me. Or three was to become a ward of the state because he couldn't have a child of his out there all living all alone in the world by himself. That just wasn't going to happen. Jeez. So at the time I took the path of least resistance and I moved in. Um, my mom left in 89, called me. Um, I went and saw her and she told me that, you know, she was leaving Tony because he was abusive because he drank because he smoked, he cursed when other people weren't around. Um, he hit her, Jesus. called her a nigger lover. Oh my God. Um, just a bunch of stuff. Um, and I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time around them. So they were traveling. I was going to school or doing whatever. And I just wasn't with them. Um, so this all came as a shock to me. Um, and I was trying to decide what to do if I was going to leave with her or whatnot. And she tells me the next morning that she's decided, you know, her and Tony talked it out and she's decided to go back and it was wrong. She made a mistake, uh, lies. Um, and so she went back for about another year and then she left again for good. Um, at that time in 1990, I decided to stay because I'd already heard the story. It was the same thing. Yeah. Um, but, I hadn't seen that behavior, so I stayed. I was comfortable. Um, I, I didn't feel abused. I didn't feel trapped. I just liked it better than the life I had before. So I stayed in the church and kind of towed the line. Uh, being Tony's stepson, most people stayed out of my way, uh, didn't caused too much friction because they were either afraid I was going to report them to Tony or they just didn't know how to treat me. They didn't know how to react. Um, 
1992, uh, late 1992, uh, met a girl. Well, she grew up in the church. Uh, we developed feelings for each other, asked Tony if we could get married. He said yes, so we got married. Shortly after that, she got pregnant. Shortly after she got pregnant, well, I'd say within two or three months after she got pregnant, I got kicked out of the church. What? Um, for things that had happened while I was out of the church. So, a uh, quick side story. Uh, in 1991, when the um, FBI and Crawford County authorities raided the Georgia Ridge property. I was there. Wow. And I was supposed to leave with one of the other uh, <clears throat> tenured brothers, one of the tenured members, but they disappeared on me. So I ended up staying in Fort Smith with a couple of friends. Um, we got into what we considered a life of iniquity at that time, which consisted of listening to rap music, <laughs> uh, not reading our Bible or praying, uh, sneaking into a nightclub to dance and drinking non-alcoholic beer. Oh my God. And, oh yeah, fornicating with women. Oh, uh, uh, so it you. was kind of like a, a six-month period there where I just felt, okay, the, the ridge is gone, the church is gone, I don't know what to do. Um, one of his lieutenants, for lack of a better term, found me. Uh we ran into each other somewhere and he asked me to come back to the church. He said, Tony wants you to come back to the church. And I was like, Nope, Nope. He doesn't, um, you know, I've done, I've sinned. I've done all this stuff. I don't think he wants me to come back. He said, well, uh, he told Tony that and Tony said he wanted me to write him a letter explaining what I'd done. <sighs> and then he would let God decide. He would let the Lord tell mm -hmm. him what he was supposed to do. Makes sense. So I did that. Um, I wrote in this letter, I explained what we had done. I explained how, how uh, I fornicated, how we drank these non-alcoholic beers, how we snuck into the holiday, the nightclub at the Holiday Inn in Fort Smith, uh, how we drove around late at night listening to rap music and ungodly music, and I hadn't been reading my Bible, and I hadn't been praying and just, I was living this life of sin in a small one-bedroom apartment with three other guys and, you know, milk crates and uh, <laughs> a piece of plywood <laughs> for a table. Um, I gave that letter, it was like four or five pages, because, of course, I was pouring my heart out to God or to Tony at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I gave it to this person. Uh, and they took it to Tony, and, they, and then shortly after that, they invited me over to uh, his house, not uh, to to the person's house, where Tony was on the phone. Uh, Tony had glaucoma, and he mm -hmm. had his new wife by then, uh, Sharon, read the letter out loud over a speakerphone in front of the two families that were there, including kids that were 14, 15 years old, uh, and all the way down to three years old, and then whoever, hell, whoever the hell else was in his house. But they read this letter out loud. Uh, I'm going to shame him. you. 
And I was utterly humiliated, ready to just walk out and go throw myself off a bridge somewhere. And at the end of it, he said I could come back. And so I kind of took it a little bit more serious from there. Um, I tried to be the model uh, citizen that I was supposed to be uh, in... Mm-hmm. 1992, late 92, um, I developed feelings for a girl in the church. Um, and of course, when that happened, you usually were told it was the devil trying to mess with your emotions. <laughs> but if you prayed about it hard enough, um, God. God would take those feelings away from you. And if he didn't, then you were supposed to talk to Tony. And so I did that. Um, and Tony felt that we should talk, that I should talk with her. And it turned out that she had some feelings towards me, and we ended up getting married. Um, Shortly after we got married, uh, she got pregnant. We Mm -hmm. got pregnant. And about two or three months after that, um, I got kicked out uh, (laughs) in 1993 uh, because uh, Tony had had a child with Sharon by this point. Uh, and his child had been sick for a while. And so uh, he felt it was because he had let sin back in the church. So <laughs> he decided to kick me out for the things that had happened back in 1991 when God said it was okay for me to come back. Now it wasn't okay. <laughs> so I left in 1993. Very mysterious ways. Um, I found out about a year later that he had decided that my ex-wife should be his fourth wife. Ah, and my God. my son, who was born oh my God. in 93, would be raised as his stepson. Um, I tried to reach out to them, tried to, tried to call them, tried to write them to no avail for uh, a while. But, of course, that's a heartbreaking oh my God. Yeah. Uh, position to be in. And so I, I really just kind of... For lack of a better term, left it up to left it up to God to take care of. Um, I have gotten back in touch with her in the last couple of years. She, you know, before Tony died, she had left the church. She had gotten kicked out of the church as well. Um, and then after Tony died, um, she felt better about going to see our son and now I have his address and we're talking, we're, we're writing each other back and forth, trying to build that relationship. Wow. I can't imagine. Um, But you know, 20 years ago affects me today. 26 years ago affects me today. Um, trying to get a job with no referenceable job history or income. Um, that was pretty tough when I first got out. Uh, I will Man. say that I think during that time that it really did make a transition from what could have been helpful to some people to just Tony's playground. Um, it really devolved after that, the polygamy and the child abuse and uh, people just not giving a shit. Like there's been people that have been there for 30, 40 years uh, their grandparents, you know, there's grandparents letting their grandchildren be married to this this seventy yeah. year old man. Like it's it's insane that p- 
people still follow that and people still think that that something good could come of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I still talk with a few people that were in the cult, kids that grew up there, uh, families that had moved in there that left beforehand. And uh, you try to remember the good things that happened. You try not to focus on the crazy shit. Uh, so it's interesting to have this opportunity, but uh, I think I'm going to leave it there for now. That's uh, <laughs> it's about 12 <laughs> minutes or so. Uh, let me you. know if there's anything else you guys want to know about. Oh, that was, you know, that was, Kenny, you no, know, Kenny, that was fantastic, man. Uh, wow. Thank you for doing that. I'm, I'm sure that wasn't easy to relive some of that and, you know, have to put it on, you know, tape that way. Sorry, we couldn't uh, do an actual, you know, interview in real time with the craziness going on this week. Wanted to to get this message in and, and just didn't have, you know, uh, a lot of available time this week. But man, that was, uh, I, I think, really powerful. I think it's, it's one thing to hear somebody, you know, go over articles and compile information about a cult that they never had any firsthand dealings with. And it's quite another thing to hear about somebody who actually lived in it and had their life very, very much affected by it. I mean, your mom was in the church. That's what got you in there. So he messed with, you know, your your relationship with your mother, I'm sure in certain ways. And then, you know, you get married inside the cult and then you have a kid and then he takes your wife and kid essentially from you. Oh my God. And it, it just shows how destructive, I mean, we we do know how destructive these cult leaders are, but it's, I think it's more powerful to hear about it by somebody who, whose life truly, truly was affected and harmed in so many ways. So glad you're out. Glad you're rebuilding that relationship. Glad you're in touch with other members who are there. I'm sure there's, you know, there's only so many things, <sighs> You know, as far as like the cold life you can talk about with people who weren't in it, you need to, I'm sure it's so, so just, you know, uh, important to have relationships with people who went through what you went through. That was such a big part of your life. So uh, appreciate it so much, Kenya. Thank you for sharing that with all of us. And, you know, maybe your message will keep somebody else who's right on the edge uh, of joining some other cult from from diving in and prevent them from, from a lot of harm. And then, uh, yeah, we'll go back to the regular Time Sucker updates uh, next week. Thank you again, Kenya, for your update this week. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, suckers. Uh, please don't get stuck in an unguarded prison room with a giant serial killer this week. And uh, please do keep on sucking. I'm trying. I'm trying to like Yoko. The band's pretty good. I'm guessing, guessing they, did all, they did all the musical work. Okay, okay, this isn't as bad as it was earlier. Uh-huh, may not be no much different. Okay, not doing the cat getting killed kind of screams. Okay, okay, all right, Yoko. Ah. Okay, getting a little rougher now. Mm-hmm. Uh, ah. you're, you're reaching too hard. At least it's not screaming still. Oh boy! Okay! Oh, what the fuck? Ah, ding 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 ding! Dear badge my way to his safety! Bring don't think don't think don't don't! Make the devil go away! Shut the fuck up, you crazy! Ah! 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.